Okay, well, I guess we may just well look, get started. Thank you, everyone, for joining us at uh, shortly after four o'clock on Sunday, March the eighteenth, two thousand and seven. Uh, and uh, appreciate you stopping by. Thank you so much. I thought that we would start since um, we're starting to get the wounded uh, coming back here from our deployments, and I use the word "our" oh so very loosely. Uh, our deployments out there in Afghanistan. And so, of course, we're starting to get these thoughtful articles that are being written, which I think is worth just having a look at. I'll just touch on it briefly and then open up the topics to uh, general praise of listeners. And um, uh, this is a guy, this is, again, from the sort of McLean's magazine. Uh, We got it for free when we signed up for our Internet, so uh, I have a glance through it. Uh, the degree to which I can stomach the saccharine propaganda, particularly to do with the wartime stuff, is uh, is interesting. And uh, this is a description of a soldier who has returned. He is um, without a foot. He's got a prosthetic foot that goes on just below, a couple of inches below the knee, down to his down to his foot. So, this his name is Corporal Barnwall. Everyone calls him Barney. He's, uh, this is the description. Corporal Barnwall is 26 years old. He is blonde and fit and drives a Ford F-150 pickup truck. My baby, he says. Growing up in Essex, a small town near Windsor, Ontario, Barney was almost the fastest kid on the playground. Nobody could catch him. Lacrosse was his specialty. After high school, he thought about using his speed to, ca- to chase criminals, but college didn't quite pan out. So, at 21, with three part-time jobs and an itch for something different, Barnwell stopped by a Canadian Forces recruiting office. During one visit, April 10, 2002, he signed a three-year contract with the Army. After basic training, he graduated as top athlete and top overall recruit. Barnwell was posted to CFB Petawawa, home of the 1st Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment. He deployed to Bosnia in 2004. Kabul was supposed to be next, but his section was scratched from the mission. Barnwall liked the infantry, but he couldn't quite picture himself as a lifer. His plan was to sign a three-year extension, serve until 2008, then give college a second try. I still wanted to be a cop, he recalls, lying on the green couch in his parents' living room. And then there is a um, description of his, um, his injury. He stepped on a landmine, lost his, his foot, and so on. But I think that it's interesting because... Naturally, there is an extraordinary amount of emotional energy and effort that is put into praising these guys who are willing to kill for money, right? I mean, they, there is an incredible inversion, inversion of any kind of rational moral hierarchy that goes into praising the troops who will pick up guns and shoot at whoever uh, their superiors point at. But I think it's really important... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to uh, make any kind of clue about the um, uh, the moral nature of this fellow. Uh, I don't really know him from Adam, but there are a few clues in the description of him that I think are important. So this is a guy who was a fast runner, so obviously he's athletic, right? So he's got a natural sort of physical athleticism, and he was a, a naturally fast runner. Uh, after high school, he wants to become a cop. Now, he goes to, he wants to go to college, but here it says, but college didn't quite pan out. College didn't quite pan out. 
And that's an important indication. There's a general rule of thumb around IQ, which is uh, a controversial but not insignificant way of measuring intelligence, that, you know, to get out of high school, you need about a 90. To get into college, you need about a 100, which is about the average. Uh, to do university, you need about a 110. To do your master's, you need about a 120. To do your PhD, um, you need 130 or so. It, these are just general rules of thumb, right? This is not sort of an exact science. But if you look at this uh, guy, he wanted to be a cop, went to college, and it didn't quite work out. And we don't know what that means, but it's probably not because he was too smart for college that it didn't quite work out. I think it's fairly safe to say, based on these sorts of indications, that uh, this guy is, is below, below the average of, of IQ, below the average of intelligence. I don't think that's too controversial a statement if you can't even make it in a local college in small town Ontario, then you're not, you know, the sharpest tool in the shed, so to speak. Now, he's a fast runner, so maybe he could have been a courier or something like that, but this is not a, a guy who has a lot of intelligence. Now, I don't know the degree to which uh, army people at the front lines, I don't know if any studies of the standard intelligence, but if you look at the general statistics, particularly in the U.S. Army, but this is the case also in the Canadian Army, that the people who are on the front lines tend to come from small towns. They tend not to have any uh, education outside of the ridiculously bad education and propaganda, brain-mincing, <laughs> soul-crushing machine of public schools. But these are not people who are particularly, on average, are not particularly intelligent. Intelligent people would look at the odds, the cost-benefit of what's going on uh, in terms of joining the military, particularly this guy joined after 9-11, right? So there was... Uh, this is not exactly like he joined the military in 1993 when the Cold War was over and it was just a way to get some travel in. So this guy uh, is not particularly bright. He may be a perfectly nice fellow, although I kind of doubt it, but he's not particularly bright because it would take a certain amount of intelligence to say, well, I'm, it would take a lot of intelligence, I think, to say, well, that's kind of killing people for money and that's like that doesn't look so good on The Sopranos, and you slap a costume on it, doesn't really change the nature of the interaction. Uh, that would take some brains. On the other hand, uh, it takes a certain amount of intelligence to say, well, 9-11 has happened. Um, if I go and do this, the odds are that I'm going to get deployed, and I'm going to get... The odds of injury are not, are not insignificant, right? I don't know how many tens of thousands of American soldiers have been injured over in uh, Iraq, but it's quite a few. If I remember rightly, it's something like 20,000 uh, have been injured to the point where, you know, it's had some significant impact, and a lot of these injuries don't occur on the battlefield and so on. But the odds are not, uh, are not insignificant when it comes to looking at this kind of stuff. So an intelligent person is going to look at those odds and say, well, yeah, I'll get some travel in and I'll get some... Uh, um, uh, I'll get some uh, uh, training, and I might get some education, but the, the risk of significant injury is, is pretty pretty high. So this would not be a calculation that most people of even average intelligence would, would make that, that calculation. And when we look at the fact that it says here he graduated as a top athlete and top overall recruit. Now, those two things are very interesting. A top athlete means that he is kind of like a, uh, I mean, he's very... He's very limber, he's very fast, he's strong, and so on. These are all just sort of physical characteristics that he has. The other thing 
that uh, you get, I, I sort of get out of this, and if you've been in the military, you can let me know uh, more about it. But a top overall recruit, what does that mean? Well, from my understanding, what it means is that he obeys orders without question. And he is obsessed in the way that only military people and totally anal people and obsessive compulsive people can be with presentation, right? with, with a crisp, creased uniform, with spotless, spit-shined shoes, with a bed made so perfectly that it looks like a table tennis top that you could bounce a quarter on. That kind of inconsequential addiction to uh, fighting the possibility of criticism, any kind of negativity, is, I think, pretty important. There is a, um, a description here of a guy who shows up for a photo shoot uh, for the magazine, right? So he is a soldier who was injured, and he's showing up for a photo shoot for the front page of this magazine, And uh, he says here, A package was waiting for him at the front desk, a new tan uniform. When he reached his room, Barnwell emptied the plastic bag and inspected each piece. He was a little agitated. The camouflage fatigues were badly creased, and the new shirt was missing his regimental patch. Only a soldier would have noticed. Over the next hour, Barnwell made things right. He ran the uniform through the hotel dryer, then walked across the street where a tailor sewed the proper patch on the sleeve. When everything was ready, he stared at himself in the bathroom mirror. It was his first time in full uniform since that November day. He stepped on a landmine. Uh, That's, again, that's a very interesting thing to look at, where the priorities are in terms of somebody's um, moral relationship to the planet and to other people. So a soldier who is perfectly happy, uh, in fact, could be overjoyed, but at least is certainly satisfied that he's doing his duty, if he goes over to foreign countries and shoots uneducated people who have never done anything to threaten him, will gun them down uh, in cold blood for money, and that he has no problem with. But if there's a crease on his uniform, by God, that is a transgression. By God, that cannot be allowed. That is just beyond terrible. And so when it says that he was a top recruit, what it means is that he's obsessed about inconsequential details to the point where he has absolutely no picture, no idea of the big picture of what he's doing. And I would say, and this is sort of the whole question around a choice and intelligence and circumstance and propaganda, and it's a very thorny issue, which I don't believe there's any particularly clear answer to. At least we won't have a clear answer until society is far more free. But I would say that the praise that the intellectuals and the writers heap upon these uh, brutes I mean, this guy, and I would say at least all the soldiers that I've met, they're fundamentally brutes. They're not too bright. They're very athletic. They have no self, no identity. And they feel completely empty in the absence of a hierarchy. And this is talked about quite a bit. I actually talk about this in um, the novel that I wrote called Almost, about what happened to the German soldiers after uh, World War I. But here's an example of somebody else who gets... Um, most of his arm, this is a description of his injury, and I'm sorry for it to be gruesome, but it's important to feel how gruesome it is and then to hear his description of his own injury. So this is another gentleman named Lowen. It says, by December, nine months after the bombing, his is still a gruesome wound. The explosion shredded the underside of his forearm, destroying most of the muscle and skin and puncturing a hole in his ulma bone, 
right near the wrist. The major nerve that controls the pinky and part of the ring finger was also severed. Chunks of the gash were so deep that doctors patched them up with pieces of muscle and nerves taken from Lowen's left leg. Seeing the injury for the first time, it is impossible not to stare at the fat, fleshy bulge near his wrist. It looks like a giant bee sting. This is his quote. For the first few days, I thought I was, I thought I was just in a bad dream and I was going to wake up and carry on like normal, says Lowen, sitting in the University of Alberta hospital waiting room. He is wearing camouflage fatigues and a matching green beret. A thin yellow patch, his official wound stripe, is sewn on the left sleeve. He says, I was more pissed off at the fact that I wasn't going to be able to finish the tour than the fact that my arm was pretty much blown off. Is that not more chilling? The psychic injury, the psychic wound, the psychic emptiness, the spiritual emptiness that this man has, that he feels worse about not being in the structured brutality of a military environment than getting his arm blown off? Do you see the people that we praise? Do you, and I know that this is not a group that would necessarily go this way, but this is more to a wider audience. The, these Sunday shows are, um, along with Ask a Therapist, the most popular thing, thing that we do in terms of downloads. So I'm just sort of trying to move this out to a wider sort of audience. People who aren't that bright, who are spiritually empty, who would rather, uh, who are more annoyed that they are taken away from the um, structured and brutal environment of the military where they get to kill people. They're more upset about being taken out of that environment than they are about having most of their arm blown off, and this guy is still facing amputation because the arm's use is coming back very slowly and painfully. But this is the heroism that we talk about. Now, if it's true that these guys are not that bright which is no sin, of course, right? I mean, I'm not that bright at fixing my car. It doesn't really matter. If it's true that these guys aren't so bright, then I think we have a particularly difficult time of it insofar as they're not bright enough to understand this stuff on their own anymore that I'm bright enough to understand quantum physics. They're not bright enough to understand this on their own, and so what they're going to do is they're going to take their cues from those around them. They're going to take their cues as to what is acceptable and what is moral, and what is right from those who are around them, which is people like you and people like me. And people who write, and people who argue, and people who speak. They can't figure it out for themselves any more than I could take out my own appendix. So they're going to take their cues from the people around them, And so, in a sense, given that these guys obviously have empty, difficult childhoods, without a doubt, you don't end up with that lack of self just accidentally, and having a self is not a function of intelligence. It's a function of connection. It's a function of intimacy. So these brutes, who are only brutes insofar as they're physically athletic and not very intelligent, they're not brutes like evil, how is it that they become people who are willing to, to make these moral choices. And then, and then the amazing thing is that we then praise them for their moral choices. These are people who can't make moral choices. They can't make moral choices. They're not bright enough. They might be able to make moral choices if moral choices were more commonsensical and more described in a way that made sense. But they themselves are not bright enough to invent morality all on their own.
So they're going to take their cues from those around them. So who is it that really creates the soldiers? In my view, is the intellectuals. Who is it who really creates the soldiers? Are people who should know better, but who praise the soldiers. And I'm not talking about the potential private soldiers in a free society who would defend you against invaders. I'm talking about these guys who say, Iraq, yeah, let's go shoot some Iraqis. Afghanistan, hey, let's go shoot some Afghanis. What have they done to us? Doesn't matter. I don't care. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to go to jail. I'm not going to go AWOL. I'm not going to take refugee status, as one guy did. We talked about recently who fled the U.S. to come to Canada because he felt it was an unjust war. In Iraq, no. These are people who say, you tell me who to shoot, and I will shoot them. And he wants to be a cop, right? So he either wants to be somebody who's shooting people who can shoot back, or he wants to be somebody who's pointing guns at people who are legally disarmed, especially up here in Canada, who can't shoot back. The taxpayers, the livestock, the herd. So the reason that I'm talking about this, and this is something that has not been around in Canada for a long time, I think it's been around certainly more recently in the U.S. and still a big issue. War, most fundamentally, I'll put forward this proposition, it's not the only proposition that you could say about war, but I think it's an important one, especially for people who enjoy philosophy and who enjoy discussing ideas. War is fundamentally a conversation about virtue. Now, there's lots of economic stuff about war that you can't have a war without a state because there's war profiteering that only occurs because you can take the money from the taxpayers and put it into the hands of Halliburton and put it into the hands of the Carlyle Group and put it into the hands of other big companies like that. So there's an economic aspect for war, and I've, I've talked about that. That's on my blog. But at a very fundamental level, that is only made possible by the moral conversations that we have about war. And when we have moral conversations about war, most fundamentally what we're having is a moral conversation about soldiers. Because <laughs> there's a, uh, an old cartoon that I remember reading. Um, the hippies used to have, I don't know, like a saying or a statement or whatever about war in the 1960s. And they would say, you know, what if they threw a war and nobody came? And they had a war and nobody showed up. Nobody volunteered. Nobody, nobody would go. Well, there'd, there'd be no war. There was a sort of fundamental truth in that. And I just remember seeing... Uh, a um, cartoon, I guess, years later in The New Yorker, I think it was, where some general was standing in front of a group of other soldier executives and generals. And, and he was saying, on the other hand, gentlemen, what if we threw a war and everybody came? Which, of course, would be impossible, too, because then there's nobody to pay for the war, nobody to grow the food that the soldiers need to fatten themselves up so they can go and shoot people. But war, in its fundamental essence, is a conversation about morality, and the subject of that conversation about morality is the soldier. This is why so much propaganda is focused on the soldier, and this is why you get that uh, the taps and the rituals and the slow walk and the crisp salutes and the white gloves and the coffins and all of this, the 21-gun salute, and you get all of this ritual. Because the soldier is a beast of prey. The soldier is an amoral, sociopathic predator, right? You can't call a soldier anything other than a hitman in any logical or moral or rational universe. And you don't need a lot of pomp and circumstance when people are really good, right? When people live moral lives. I, mean, I don't 
have to salute my wife every morning she gets up and have a roll call and, you know, <laughs> march around the, uh, the backyard because she's a genuinely good and wonderful human being, doesn't need all this ritual. To puncture the ritual around the myth of the virtue, to puncture the myth of the virtue of the soldier is an essential task for those who are interested in opposing the spread of the most evil of human institutions, which is war. The institution that is so evil that it destroys everyone it comes in contact with, it corrupts the culture that engages in it, and it destroys the culture that it is inflicted upon. And the only way to break the back of mankind's addiction to war is to confront the fundamental moral judgment about the soldier. And if we confront that fundamental moral judgment about the soldier, then we are doing far more, I think, to oppose human misery than just about anything else that we can do. I think that is one of the greatest things that we can do. Yes, we can fight the welfare state. Yes, we can do all of these things, uh, oppose taxation, and we can oppose foreign policy and so on. But all of that eventually has to come down to what is colloquially called boots on the ground. Boots on the ground is a metaphor for bullets in the brain. Boots on the ground is a metaphor for knives in the belly. And soldiers walking around don't do a damn thing. If you knew that their guns were made of chocolate, and you know, it wouldn't do anything. Boots in the ground doesn't mean anything. What it means is that it means stilettos through the eye. It means bullets in the bowels. It means shooting. I mean, war is obviously... And I know this is fundamental and obvious, but the way in which we dissociate the brutality and violence of war, the, the endless murder and the people slipping on their own intestines and the people who can uh, you know, hold their own arms in their one arm and their other arm because it's been blown off and all this kind of stuff, we must dissociate it from that, right? So this guy has an injury. He stepped on a landmine, and we have a lot of sympathy. At least we're supposed to have a lot of sympathy for this guy. But fundamentally, and I think quite essentially, nobody is ever talking about the people that he shot. So this guy comes back to a first world country with all the antibiotics, with artificial limbs, with, um, uh, with uh, people who will give him intense and very good physiotherapy, with a government that is going to rob the taxpayers even more to pay for this guy, to buy him off, right, as a, as a wounded warrior, as a fallen soldier, as a blah, 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 blah. And we, of course, uh, in the United States, people get very upset about what happened at Walter Reed because there were some rodents running around the injured soldiers, right? The wounded killers. These are the same people, obviously, and <laughs> tragically, who say, well, I mean, if somebody kills somebody else, they should, we should just string them up. We should have the death penalty. I don't care a damn fig for any of these people who kill other people. But the soldiers, my God, we're treating the soldiers badly? Well, let's get some money over there. Let's get some resources over there because they're heroes. But picture what it's like on the other side of the rifle site. Picture what it's like if you get your foot blown off and you're some Afghani. And let's say you're a soldier. We don't have to make it too tear-jerky a thing. I mean, obviously it happens to kids and so on, but we can make it a more clear moral equivalent. And you get shot and you get your foot blown off and you're an Afghani a Mujahideen or an Afghani warrior, what happens? Are you airlifted to Germany and then are you airlifted to a first world hospital? Hell no. You're dragged off to a cave where maybe, just maybe, you might have some morphine. Maybe. Maybe, just maybe, you might have some antibiotics. 
Maybe, just maybe, they'll just give you something to bite down on while they dig the shrapnel out of your broken body. Maybe, just maybe, you won't get an infection that runs riot through your entire system and causes you to die in screaming agony. Or, if you are screaming, maybe, just maybe, people won't cut your throat for fear that you'll be hurt. So it's all very well and good to look at our own wounded and fallen soldiers and so on and feel all the sympathy in the world for them. But the people on the other side of the site are doing a hell of a lot worse. Are doing a hell of a lot worse. And these people put them there. Do people seriously think that if we weren't out there shooting Muslims, if we weren't out there shooting Afghanis, that the Afghanis would be over here shooting us? Do I think when I leave my house to go for a walk in the afternoon, as I did this afternoon, that I'm really worried that some Afghani sniper is going to shoot me? Well, of course not. But that's just the life that they lead. So the last thing, of course, that I'll say about this, I mentioned this before, so I'll just keep it brief. We say, well, the difference is that we're good and they're bad. The difference is that we're good, you see, and they're bad. Our soldiers are noble and heroic, though they have an IQ of 90 and have no moral clue what they're doing and are just following what everyone tells them is a good thing to do. Our soldiers are the good guys, and they're those nasty, evil mujahideen, those Muslims, those crazy bastards, they're evil. And that's the difference. Our guys should get the best treatment in the world in the finest hospitals because they're good. The Afghanis should die bleeding in agony and cupping their own intestines in some frozen cave because they're bad, and that's the fate they deserve. But the fundamental question is, um, what makes the Canadian soldier good, and what makes the Afghani soldier bad? And there's an easy and obvious answer to that, which is that the Canadian soldier... um, respects human rights and isn't a religious crazy fundamentalist and and doesn't force his women to wear a burqa and so on. And that's, I mean, obviously that's a very surface answer. It doesn't really help you. It doesn't really help you. Let's say that the American or the Canadian soldier is is a, a free market capitalist women's right advocate. Well, did he come up with all of that stuff on his own? I doubt it. Nobody has. Did he invent democracy? Did he invent rationality? Did he invent the concept of the free market and any kind of positive benefits which may accrue to that? Did the, do these guys who have an IQ of 90, are they the greatest, greatest philosophers the world has ever known? And they, they invent these staggeringly moral approaches to life in their own room? In between airings of the family guy? I don't think so. Somebody told them. Somebody told them what is right and what is wrong. They didn't invent it. And there is no gene in Canadians, and there is no gene in North Americans, and there is no gene in the British that makes us more susceptible or more receptive to what we're told is right and wrong than anybody else in the world. And if it were genetic, it wouldn't be right anymore. Your height is genetic. Nobody says that height is moral or eye color. So we say, well, our guys are good guys, and they're good guys because someone told them what was right and wrong. They didn't invent it. 
They can't validate it. They have no reference point. This is the only culture they know. Somebody told them what was right and what was wrong. And that makes them heroes because they believed what we told them was right and wrong. We told them, I don't know, equality between the sexes is right. And they went, okay. Who do I shoot now? That makes them good guys. But the problem with that, of course, is that the guys over in uh, Afghanistan have also been told what is right and what is wrong. By their groups, their intellectuals, their priests, their political leaders, their spiritual leaders, whoever. So our guys are told a certain set of standards is right. And that doesn't make them moral, that just makes them obedient. It doesn't make it moral if somebody tells you this is right and you obey them. I mean, if they do happen to tell you that something is right and you obey that, that makes you obedient and it's fortuitous, but it doesn't make you moral. You've got to understand morality to be moral. You've got to live in the realm of principles, not in the realm of obedience to social standards. So we call our guys good because they obey our standards, and we call the Muslim guys bad because they're obeying their standards. What they've been told is right and wrong. Now, do I believe that the virtues and values in Canada are morally equivalent to the virtues and values in uh, Afghanistan? Of course not. I think our society is better. I think that we have more truth. We have more free markets. We have more liberation. We have uh, greater equality. I think that's all good. But the soldiers don't know that. The soldiers haven't figured that out. They haven't reasoned that because they've been busy learning how to scale fences and kill people with their bare hands. So if you understand that we only call our soldiers good because they obey the social standards, then we must also, using that same logic, call the enemies, our enemies, the Afghanis, the Muslims, the Al-Qaeda, whoever. They must also be good, logically. Because they're just doing what they're told. They're just obeying their culture's orders. They're just conforming to what their culture says is right and wrong. Now, if we say, well, our guys are good because there's an objective standard of right and wrong, then you tell me what that objective standard is of right and wrong that praises as the highest virtue people who would kill for money. And I will walk away satisfied and thoroughly enlightened. That's it for my introduction, ladies and gentlemen. Look at that. Only half an hour. Not too bad. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate that. I wanted to talk about that for a little while. I know I've touched on it from time to time uh, in, uh, in various podcasts, but I kind of wanted to bring it all together. So uh, I now open it up. Before that, though, and I hope that I won't embarrass our good friend Rob by mentioning this, I was trying to contact him uh, or get in touch with him. We missed each other this week. Um, he's in California, and I'm over 40, so I go to bed at 7 o'clock. And uh, so never the twain shall meet, but uh, I just wanted to... Um, and we, we have some people who are listening to the show have been very, very generous in their donations, um, Raj last week went above and beyond the call of duty he donated um, three kidneys and two children I don't know where he got the third kidney from and I hope he's okay on that dialysis but I just wanted to say that um, it's a wonderful gesture uh, I really do appreciate it um, obviously every goodie that I have in my goodie bag uh, is, is, is on its way and I really appreciate that and uh, every goodie that I'm going to be coming up with over the next little while uh, is also going to be uh, you know, going that way so I just wanted to really, really uh, say that 
I mean, <laughs> this, this is going to sound vain and weird, so I apologize for that, but I think it's important to say. I know that I'm worth it. Like, I know that the conversation that we're having here is worth it, but it is just enormously wonderful to, to have other people see how much uh, that they appreciate its value as well. So uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And uh, uh, if you wanted to respond to that, and uh, hopefully not to be too... Um, <laughs> three kidneys Canadian is only a few fingernails U.S. You know, that joke would have worked about two years ago, but uh, we're closing the gap, baby. You just keep putting those Patriot Acts in, and we'll be catching up pretty quickly. Actually, I say the we, but uh, of course we're still thinking of uh, moving, so <laughs> the we may not be particularly um, uh, up there. Uh, um, do you mind if I do you mind if I put you on? Would would that be okay? Uh, it seems only fair. So, Rod, I'm just going to put a little Barry White on in the background, and uh, let's talk. <clears throat> You're on. Howdy. Hi. How's it, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? Fantastic. So tell me, to take me through the decision tree. This is interesting because if I can replicate this, I'll own the planet. <laughs> well, I've been, uh, I've been just wanting to fling as much cash at you as possible um, for quite a while. I, uh, I used to give, I used to donate a bit of money to um, LewRockwell.com and the Mises Institute. Um, because they were, you know, I've always had a desire to make a positive uh, impact in the world. And since I'm usually kind of busy with my work and stuff, and I don't have a whole heck of a lot of, uh, you know, website creation creation talent and things like that, I just wanted to uh, tell everyone I possibly could to go look at these sites and then support them financially if I could. Well, I certainly appreciate and, uh, that, and I also appreciate the fact that you're going to continue to be working so hard. I think that is um, that is essential, and uh, anything I can do to help support you on that, I'm more than happy to. Well, actually, this um, that brings up a good point. I just had my uh, annual review about a week ago, and um, it was definitely by far the most positive review I've ever had in my life on any job I've ever done. It was just it was glowing, and uh, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that a lot of that had to do with the increased self-confidence I have and just the, the way that I go about interacting with people in, at work um, as a result of, you know, this conversation. So it's, it's making a humongous difference in my life already. And I just, I know that if I live to be, you know, 60 years old or, you know, even more, it's just going to be priceless, you know, the, the difference that it's made just from the different outlook I have. So... That's very interesting, and I've certainly found that to be the case uh, after I did a couple of years of therapy that uh, my relationships, um, they either got better or <laughs> kind of got gone, and it certainly had a direct fiscal impact, and, and you know, it's always tough to quantify, but there is the happiness, and out of the happiness and confidence comes the, um, the sort of the, the prosperity, like the financial stuff that I think is, is positive. Um, can you think of sort of specific areas, or is it more diffuse than that within your work where the philosophical conversations that you've been involved in have had that sort of positive effect? Oh, it's definitely been in, um, it has a lot to do with the, the self-confidence thing. Um, I guess it's just uh, being able to approach things rationally or more rationally than I used to. Um, I, would I used to get really caught up in you know, feelings of embarrassment or, um, I guess, you know, just lack of confidence in putting forth my ideas and things like that. 
And over the last year, I've been I've been able to, I guess, be a little more assertive. I think that's the best way to put it. In uh, you know, defending ideas that I believe are are worthwhile, and and letting go of the ones that I realize are just kind of minor. But uh, I mean, I know that the assertiveness has paid off several times. You know, in very tangible results where we've, you know, I'm an engineer, so we do, uh, you know, we're doing design work a lot, and uh, you know, a lot of times we have these meetings where. Uh, I guess we'll just be kind of brainstorming, throwing ideas around and stuff. And there are certain people in the company who have a very strong tendency to just toss out anything that doesn't appeal to them immediately. So I guess with a little increased tenacity, you know, and some assertiveness, I've been able to to help uh, get some really good ideas through that, in the end, a lot of people end up liking. So that's just one of the ways that it's working. But uh, Right. I mean, the the great thing about philosophy is it really helps to depersonalize and I know I'm famous for the rants and so on, but but still, it really does help you depersonalize the ideas, right? So when if you're not well-schooled in philosophy and there's no reason why anyone would, would be, I mean, it's not innate any more than it's innate to think the world is round. If you're not well-schooled in philosophy, then it becomes, I must get my ideas in there. I must get uh, my way across. I must get my methodology. And it, it's personal. And then, of course, if it's rejected, it becomes like you uh, you feel like you're sort of emotionally collapsing in on yourself and then you get angry or frustrated or whatever, right? But if it's like we are a team within reality looking for the best solution, here's my idea. And this is true in philosophy, in, in, in ethics, in psychology, all these kinds of things that here's an idea. Let's see if it's any good. It's It's you comparing your thoughts to reality, not trying to dominate or be dominated with regards to other people, if that makes any sense. No, that's exactly it. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, again, this is just a, a byproduct of what is going on just in my personal life. I mean, it's, uh, you know, honestly, in the last the couple of years, last couple of years before I really got into the uh, free domain stuff, I mean, I had a little bit of progress with with uh, the Mises Institute website, especially um, just, you know, there were certain articles on there that would kind of unlock things in my mind, little little flashes of light. But when I started on the FDR stuff, it's just been, you know, floodlights, you know. So it's uh, the, um, but the years before that, I was really getting into a bad spot. I mean, I was, I can say, pretty safely say that I was pretty horribly depressed. And in fact, I went to some, some therapy for just a few sessions and I actually ended up worse off than I was going in just because because the uh, lady who was doing my therapy actually suggested that since I was having troubles reconciling my my agnosticism with my you know my family's theism that her suggestion to me was to go back to believing in God just because it's easier or something like that and it was just like <laughs> total total just mess up right there so. Yeah, the, the so problem anyway, this is, is uh, you're the, not living the long... in pure fantasy. The problem is you're not living right. in pure fantasy. So this half and half is no good. Go all the way back into fantasy and you'll be fine. Get back in the cave. That's right. Just right. just be completely stupefied and you'll be fine. But, uh, you know, honestly, this, this conversation that you've been having from day one has just resonated in me just profoundly. I just can't even, I can't even begin to explain to you how much it's just, I mean, there's, Every podcast gains traction, you know, in my mind. So it's it's really great. And well, it's I worth every penny I've that. given you, and it's going to be worth every penny I will in the future. So 
I appreciate that. And did you? Uh, how did you feel after? Uh, did you feel any sort of biased remorse or anything like that after you gave this? I mean, the biggest donation I, I've had so far. How did you feel after that? I mean, I have a sort of theory about it. I don't want to sort of cloud it, but but how did you feel sort of after you you sent it off, and then when the e check cleared and so on? What was your emotional experience after donating? Oh, I was it was completely gratifying. I mean, it was you know I think it was at the end of last year I sent one at about half that big. And uh, that was the same experience then. I knew then that I was doing something that I really wanted to do. And as soon as I hit the, you know, pay button, I felt great. And I, I still feel good about it. It's, it's something that I, I'm not looking back and thinking, oh, gosh, what did I do that for? I feel like it's one of the best things I've ever done, you know. Steph, I'm I mean, so sorry. A, I slipped a digit. Um, <laughs> actually, two. <laughs> I'll do what I'll do. <laughs> recall, recall. <laughs> no, but it's just like when you say, is there any bars or more? It's like, exactly the opposite as as each stage went by you know first deciding how much and then hitting pay and then watching the e-check clear is just like a, a better feeling you know each time so you know it's great it's i mean continue and then, too i hope so in the future yeah absolutely i mean whatever there is a value for you i said i certainly appreciate it of course um I do sort of have a vague theory which is completely non-empirical um and i've sort of noticed that my life has improved the degree to which I dedicate time and effort to philosophy. I mean, this is um, a very basic sort of thing. Of course, the reason that I do this is because it helps me, and in through that, it sort of helps other people in terms of clarity and, and confidence and so on. And I think that the rational people have spent all of history getting beaten down by irrational people who are just absolutist and bullies. So I, one of the reasons I sort of found my way to a particular place where I, feel, I felt that I could start to become more assertive in a non-aggressive kind of way. And so I felt that I really wanted to hand out a couple of uh, sharp swords to the rational people because we always get beaten up throughout history, right? The most rational people are always the ones who get screwed because everyone's frightened of the irrational people, right? This sort of ties back to why we praise the soldiers because they're pretty scary, right? So we praise them. And people generally will always side with the most brutal rather than the person who's the most right. So I really wanted to try and share that kind of stuff. I have sort of noticed, and Greg, of course, has also been really generous with, with his donations, um, it's good. I'm getting a good demographic of people I need to talk to. Um, but for me, I, I think that I've sort of noticed that there has been real breakthroughs for people in their life. And I know that this sounds totally self-serving and cheesy, but the important thing to remember for people who are thinking of donating and thinking, oh, that's Steph, he's just trying to get me to donate, is that you know what I ask for from people in terms of donations is just nothing compared to the time that I'm putting in, right? Like, I'm not sort of sitting here in a hammock saying, hey, donate to me. Eh? <laughs> I'll be, you know, I need more margaritas, right? Bring on the dancing women and the boys, Brazilian boys with coconuts. Um, I'm just foreshadowing to the vacation, but, um, but I've noticed that the same thing occurred with Greg and, uh, uh, that, that, uh, there is, um, a kind of like, uh, it's, it's a commitment, right? Obviously you, you're, you're placing a certain value on it. That's not abstract and that has real traction within your own life. And you're saying, well, there's things that I could have bought with this money, but I'm not, I'm going to donate it to this. Uh, the more time that I invest in it, the happier I am, I mean, without a doubt. And this is, of course, why you know people say, well, is it a big sacrifice to quit your job? And it's like, uh, no, not really, because it's, it's a, you know, the more that I invest in it, uh, the happier and the better. And it makes it more real to sort of put some real skin in the game, at least for me, so to invest in, in the hardware and, and the bandwidth and all that kind of stuff and the time and the tools and the logos and all that kind of crap. To me, it, it, it really helps me move forward in my life to to 
put some real traction behind this kind of stuff. I've noticed that with some other people who've donated that shortly after they donate, they, and again, there's lots of alchemy that's going on here. This could be complete coincidence. It also might be wishful thinking on my part. But the thing that I sort of noticed is that donation is uh, followed by uh, a breakthrough because, you're, as I said before, your unconscious listens to how important philosophy is to you. Right? How is how important? And that's why I say to people, you know, eighteen bucks a month, you can you know subscribe to this show, and then you know at least philosophy is as valuable as half a cup of coffee a day for you. But if you say, well, I really want to be a philosopher, or I really enjoy philosophy, I really want to live with integrity, I'm going to listen to all these podcasts, but it's like, ooh, fifty cents a day, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, the problem is then that your unconscious picks that up very clearly, right, and says, oh, okay, so we're just kind of playing around here, and then you kind of don't get anywhere in a way. And I think that actually leads you, it ends up sort of you, you being worse off. So anyway, I know it sounds self-serving and so on, but I think that there is some real value in that sort of why, why I was asking that. No, you're absolutely right, and, and it is, it does, I know for me at least, it has served almost as like a spur to action because uh, in, the, in the early days of, you know, listening, I came in with a few little donations here and there. And I remember it seemed like soon after I would donate, then, you know, I, I would drop a, a bad friendship or I would, you know, kind of commit myself more to a good friendship, things like that. Um, right after the one last fall, I decided not to go home for Christmas. And I went up to see my cousin and said, oh, and by the way, the, the oh gosh, the ability that I had to make a positive um, influence on my cousin's life over the Christmas break is just priceless to me. I mean, it's she has had a just ridiculously awful life, childhood, and um, and she is making progress now that I'm certain is going to, you know, completely change the course of her life. So this, and that directly came from my experiences here. So that. You know, again, I, I still feel like I'm just getting a tremendous bargain here and any any penny I can possibly fling at you. So it's really well, great. Pennies are painful, but I certainly do appreciate the uh, <laughs> any pennies I can drop on you from a great height. <laughs> look, look at the philosopher dance. Um, can you t- <laughs> is there anything that you can share a little bit more about what occurred uh, with your cousin? Because uh, I certainly do remember you talking about that before and was quite interested in what might be going on. I don't want you to, to say anything you're not comfortable with, but is there anything that you can right. share in that realm? Well, she's actually very open with this, and she, and that's one thing that's that's great about her is that she's never lost her ability to, to be open and honest with people. And she had a, a very troublesome childhood where actually it was her, her mother is my father's sister, and if you remember from you know the stories of my own childhood, you know my dad was the one with the chemical imbalances that would cause him to fly off the handle pretty easily. Um, luckily, he never physically harmed me, but, um, you know, just the kind of psychological, you know, war zone that I lived in was pretty ridiculous. But her life was, you know, that times 10. It was really awful. Her her father was, I'm pretty sure he's an alcoholic. Her brother was, I think, diagnosed with um, her older. He's, he's older than her by, I believe, Oh gosh, must be almost ten years, maybe eight or ten years. But anyway, he was diagnosed with uh, maybe schizophrenia, but at least uh, Tourette syndrome. Um, not only did her, you know, her mother, of course, kind of psychologically ne- neglected her and stuff. Her father was physically violent to the family, 
and her brother, um, you know, the, the podcast that you recently had about the the older brother who abused his younger sister, it was, you know, it sounded like an echo of my, my cousin's life. And um, so she's really going through all of it, you know. I mean, it's just a complete blender. And uh, when I was up uh, visiting uh, her and her husband over Christmas break, you know, they have, you know, their their relationship is kind of a strange combination. It's like a, you know, in some ways they're very open and, and close and honest and, you know, empathic and compassionate. And in other ways, they just, when they get into arguments, they just dig in and it's just the fur flies. And I started just talking to her about the, you know, the family stuff that I've been learning about. And, and she just immediately started just grasping things like it was it was amazing watching it happen and uh yeah and she she started communicating with her mother and she's talking about going into therapy and stuff like that and then you know she kind of got a little bit caught up in the the whole defooing of rod process because my my mother has kind of a close relationship with this cousin and so of course when i stopped talking to my mom then my mom started talking to my cousin and i got some of the my cousin forwarded some of the emails that were going back and forth between them, and I am just absolutely shocked at how how well my cousin is handling it. She is she's assertive. She's you know she's not falling for any of the uh, the treacly um, you know manipulation schemes and stuff like that. She's really just I mean she's she's you know fifth degree black belt already. I mean she's actually passed me in some ways. And it's just, it's just shocking. It's, it's amazing to me to watch this happen. And she's been an inspiration to me, you know, all over again. So, again, it's like the, it's like by me putting out these, you know, positive things to other people, it comes back, it reflects to me, and it builds me up even more. So it's, I mean, gosh, it's like a, it's a, you know, an amplifier. It's fantastic. Now, does she have kids yet? No, she doesn't. She's actually a year younger than I am. Right. So, I mean, this is another fantastic thing that you're doing, right? I mean, this is, you are now creating a different childhood for her children, right? I mean, they, they will grow up in a completely different planet, right? You have, it may not be heaven, but it sure as hell isn't going to be hell, right? And, and that is an incredible thing. Uh, and of course, then their kids, and this is how this stuff multiplies. I mean, everybody wants to bring down the state, uh, and that's fine, you know, good luck. But uh, for me, it's this, you know, incremental uh, positive personal changes through example, through conversation, through challenging, through you know assertion, through receptivity, through empathy, whatever you've got to do to dislodge people from fixed positions and from a blindness to their own history. You dance, I'd dance with a gesture's cap naked if I thought it would help. Um, and uh, and oh, I'm just making a note now, podcast 700, okay. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, you, you're doing an amazing thing there. I mean, you, you're creating a, a whole new world for people. They're going to grow up, and you're breaking the cycle. They're going to grow up in a, a world where if she goes to therapy, and I'm sure she will, and she continues with this process, then she's just going to be a different mom. She's going to have a different relationship with her husband, uh, which is going to transmit to their different relationship with their father as they move forward. And uh, it's, it's an amazing thing that, that that is changing the world. For me, that is really changing the world. And... Uh, there's nothing wrong with the Mises podcasts. I enjoy them as much as the next person, but that's not going to change the world, right? It's going to get you into political arguments and economics arguments, but that's not going to be the kind of stuff wherein the world gets reshaped in the virtuous, in, in a sort of more virtuous and more benevolent light. 
Right. No, exactly. And on the uh, the the whole point about children too, I've kind of mentioned this before as well. Is there is a uh, a young lady at work that I you know frequently have lunch with, and she's just had a child. So you know the conversations we have there. I you know I'm not sure if it's making as much of an impact there because she's still kind of mired in the whole family thing. She's actually Asian, so of course the Asian family is very you know very well ingrained. But still, she's you know, from the feedback that she's given me, it looks like, you know, her boy is probably going to have a, you know, incrementally better life as well. So it's just, I, it's just thrilling to be able to see how this positive stuff that's, you know, originating here in this conversation kind of flows through me out into the world. And it, it's literally creating a better environment for me to live in, you know, and it's just, it's fantastic. And of course, it's always been baffling to me when people say, well, I don't know how an atheist can think that life has any meaning. When we're able to achieve things like this, how could you conceive of a life that could have more meaning in a way? Yeah. In fact, back when I used to, you know, back when I used to believe in God or I was a waffling agnostic, you know, I I thought life had less meaning than I do now. I mean, now for some reason the perspective that I have has has given me, you know, more I, I mean I cherish life more. I'm fascinated by it more. There's you know, the the colors are brighter, the tastes are more, you know, lively. I mean everything is different, you know. And like it's a meaning that you're not in, it's a meaning that you're not inheriting from a priest, right? I mean it's 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 your story now, right? I mean the I, I try not to give too too many, you know, believe this, believe that. It's just all all about principles and about keeping the conversation going. It's why I do the dream analysis, right? Because the dream analysis is about provoking depth. It's not about having syllogistic answers to things. And there's a real richness and meaning in all of that. And we're so we're full of false meanings, which are the fantasies that we're told about from other people. But when we start to work these principles for our own selves, then there's just such a great degree of power and effect that we can have in the world, positive effect that we can have in the world, that it's just it makes life delightful, really, fundamentally delightful. And uh, I have, you know, other than spending time with my wife, there's more, no more fun that I have uh, doing the podcast, right? I mean, it should be illegal. Um, and that kind of, uh, uh, when you're happy and when you're having a positive impact on the world, I don't know what people are looking for in terms of meaning, but I can't imagine that they would want a lot more than that. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the podcast you had recently on the Why I Do What I Do, you were describing how, you know, you're just kind of a... <laughs> You're a sensual, I don't know, what did you say, sensual slut or something like that? Whatever it was, you were describing how you just, you would look out into the world and see the, you know, the trees and you would feel the bump in the road through the car seat, things like that. And, you know, it's just, podcasts like that, just, they they chisel smiles on my face that don't leave for weeks, you know? And it's, um, you know, I've had moments when I'm, you know, I step out of the car, I'm listening to one of your podcasts, and I just... I pause in the parking lot on my way up to my apartment and I just take a deep breath and I feel the air filling my lungs and realize that my lungs are doing exactly what they were designed to do and I, you know, the, the air feels cool and, and crisp and I just, I start feeling things and I, it's like a meditation constantly almost. It's, it's just fantastic. Well, I appreciate that and Jonathan has just posted and said, uh, it's a quote of mine, I think, philosophy is like having a ferret in your pants when you're trying to get your picture taken. I think that, uh, I'm not sure that was the same podcast, but it does sound like one of those vaguely unhelpful metaphors that I come up with. So, yeah. 
So again, it's just you know when I look forward to the maybe 50 years I have ahead of me, you know every every day of those 50 years is worth the the donations I've given you so far. So look and keep uh, keep fantastic. us posted. Sorry to interrupt, but keep us posted about. I have a theory that donations come back. You know that uh, that when you get uh, traction in your life with regards to um, uh, when when you accept the sort of value philosophy and the way that we talk about it here that it comes back. I know that my, you know, I spent 20,000 bucks and uh, two years in therapy totally came back because now I can live off my wife. I mean, sorry, it totally came back insofar as I got better paying uh, jobs. I was able to take on more responsibility and more confidence and so on. Um, but uh, let us know what happens when you get a raise. Um, and uh, certainly for me, it's like uh, I, I totally believe that the I'm going to make more money doing this than I ever have in my uh, business career. And that's not a, a small, <laughs> I sold the company twice, it's not a small thing to say that I'm going to make more money doing this, but I absolutely have no doubt that that is going to be the case. So for me to sort of say, well, I surrender myself to philosophy and I'm just going to give up 160000 bucks a year to, uh, to do this, uh, it's no sacrifice because I do believe that it's going to come back more um, and I have no problem with the whole ethics of prosperity and so on. So uh, just uh, just keep us posted and, and, and let us know. That's sort of a theory that I have, right? So uh, Greg is... Yeah, there. and I'm also gaining a, a completely new perspective on, you know, just my career in general. I mean, it's the... You know, right now I'm, I'm working in a job where I don't particularly enjoy, you know, so much my company's, um, you know, the, the overall vibe of the company, so to speak. But it's not bothering me so much. It's the, you know, I've... I, you know, I have certain priorities in my life right now, and I, you know, just following those priorities. But the, uh, you know, the overall perspective that I have on, you know, what do I consider success, and you know, what do I consider as, you know, profiting. I mean, it used to be all about money, but now it's, you know, there's a lot more about, uh, you know, how happy, I am. and it's, um, you know, whether or not I get a raise, it's as long as I'm doing something that I enjoy, and and actually when I'm when I'm working with FDR piped into my ears i'm enjoying it anyway so it doesn't really matter that's good but, but it's uh, important you know, not to be selfish you need the raise so that you can donate more um so absolutely. that's really what i'm talking about just kidding <laughs> all right but listen i'm going to there's some other people I'll i think right you wanted to ask thank you so much again for what you did this last weekend i hugely appreciate it and to all of the other people who've donated um we're not quite up a year yet uh and uh it's it's this generosity of, of people who are making this possible and uh, i can only tell you that it will be better. Uh, the show will be even better when I can work in it full time. So uh, I, I don't mean more of it. I actually think there'll be a little less of it, but <laughs> that may not be the end of the world for people who like to sleep and shower and do all of that kind of stuff. So if you have uh, a question or a comment, an issue or a problem, or just want to know what the hell we're talking about here, uh, please feel free to click on Request Mike, and I'll see if I can get them for you. Anybody? Do we have anyone? Oh. oh, yes, here we go. Okay, we do have some. Okay, we are going to go back to the five and dime. Jimmy D? Hello, I think you're right. You? Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, I just came into this room, and I'm very curious to see what it's all about. Uh, um, what's the purpose, and uh, what are you trying to achieve? This is a show that is dedicated to philosophy, uh, to the rational examination of 
ethical, artistic, moral, social, economic, and familial relationships, principles, uh, according to uh, philosophy, uh, based on um, rational syllogisms and so on. And we sort of run the gamut from uh, all of the topics that I've sort of mentioned and uh, trying to find ways to live a life of integrity and virtue, uh, despite some rather challenging <laughs> social and familial situations. So that's really the show. The, 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 um, the sort of theme or the, the tagline of the show is the logic of personal and political freedom. So we do talk about the state and we do talk about foreign policy and war and so on, and that's where the show started today. But we do try to sort of bring home these... We do try to bring these principles home to um, familial and work situations so that you can live a life of greater integrity and greater rationality, and consequently we've sort of found out a good deal of greater happiness. So that's the idea behind the show. And so I, I wouldn't mind talking a little bit about this, uh, you know, this idea of freedom. Um, do you believe that uh, in general people are free? No, I don't, uh, I don't believe that people are free. I think that they should be free, uh, and I think that people have the capacity to be free, but I don't think that people are free. I sort of go with, with Plato or, I guess, with Socrates in this area that um, there's this old myth you've probably heard. I'll just touch on it briefly that, that Plato said that most people are looking at what they think of as the world, but what they're actually doing is they're looking at the shadows on a cave wall that are cast by animals or people walking in front of a fire. They're not looking at the people. They're not looking at the fire. They're looking at the shadows on the wall, and they're thinking that they're looking at something real. And they then get enslaved to these illusions. And this is not something that's innate to human nature. This is something that is inflicted upon us, usually when we're children, when we're told about uh, God's and we're told about the virtue of our society, we're told about patriotism, we're put in government schools where we're taught that the government is good and you know wants to help us and so on, and we're not taught any of the basic truths about life and the basic truths like that there's no God, the basic truths that uh, the government is based on uh, a system of coercion, the taxation and so on is based on a system of coercion, and that there's no particular virtue in family. I mean, families can be good, there can be very good people in families, but your mother is not good because she's your mother, and your father is not good because... So we, we have all of these ideas about virtue, that it's about obedience to the state, or it's about obedience to the priest, or it's about obedience to our parents. But uh, none of it is true. None of it stands up to any kind of rational analysis. And because people believe all of these things, they end up living a life where they're just chasing these ghosts and not really having any freedom, but rather just being enslaved to lots of different things, their appetites to social structures, to priests, to parents, and politicians. Okay, so you say that none of this is true. Do you know what is true? I think so. <laughs> I mean, I know that uh, the odds of, of, you know, jumping into a Skype cast and, and hearing somebody talk about what they think is true in defiance to all of these social norms, I totally get that the odds of that are tiny, and uh, <laughs> I'm totally aware that uh, you, you may think that I'm talking out of my armpit, uh, but I'm not. Uh, <laughs> so I think, I think that we have worked out some pretty good ideas of what is true, and we have a pretty um, active forum where we were discussing a fairly new approach to, to philosophy where we try and work from first principles using the scientific method to really rigorously try to figure out what is true and what is false, and then apply those principles in our own life and sort of see what happens. And uh, it's been, I think, pretty great for most of the people who've given it a shot. Okay, so what, uh, can you give me an example of something that is true? Sure. Uh, two plus two is four. I get no problem with that. The world is round. Absolutely down with that. Um, that logic is valid. 
the empirical external world exists independently of our consciousness. Wishing doesn't make anything true. Belief doesn't make anything true. Faith, God help us, doesn't make anything true. But the way that we know that things are true is we use logic uh, and we use the scientific method, right, which is a combination of logic and theory and testability in practice. So it is true. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, you said a couple of things there that uh, um, I, uh, you know, for example, you said that the the world exists independently, you know, um, and things like uh, faith doesn't make anything true. Are you 100% sure that these statements are uh, are correct? Well, I'm not uh, going to try and convince you what I think is, uh, is the case, but I can certainly guarantee you that you believe that the world exists independently of your consciousness. I can, I can guarantee you that, that you believe that for sure. Well, are you sure about that? I'm absolutely positive. I mean, and I can prove it to you in like one sentence if you like. Well, be my guest. Sure. To me. Um, you're talking to me, right? Yeah. So you're using your voice to communicate intelligible words to somebody else. So naturally, you're accepting that the internet is real. You're accepting that your voice uh, is valid. You're accepting that your microphone is working. You're accepting that I am an independent consciousness at the other end of this data stream. So you're having a conversation with me. So I absolutely guarantee you that you believe that a world exists independently of your consciousness. Because if you didn't, you wouldn't be talking to me. Well, um, you know... um... There are certain parts of um, my mind that may believe all those things, but maybe there are other parts that don't. So, do um, you believe that? Do you believe that I exist independently of your consciousness? I believe that you exist independently of my consciousness. Yes, um, but then again, um, no. I, you know, I, I believe that your consciousness and mine are. Are linked and, and no, they, they don't exist independent of each other. Sorry, they don't. Okay, because so I don't, I don't exist independently. Sorry to interrupt. So I just want to make sure because you did a bit yeah. of a, a U turn there, yeah, which no, is no problem. No, you, you do not in the, uh, exist independently of my consciousness, and neither do I exist independently of yours because your consciousness and my consciousness are different aspects of the same consciousness. Excellent. And what is you that same be- consciousness? What is the third consciousness Sorry? that we share? What is the third consciousness that we share? Like you say, what we're two, we're two parts I... of a bigger whole, right? Like two pieces of pizza are part of the whole pizza? Yeah. So what's the whole pizza? I, you can't put it into words. It's, uh, when you start talking about consciousness, you're talking about a domain that's uh, non-dualistic. Yeah. It's, um, even asking that question... You know, is it doesn't really have much meaning. But but, but you're I so you can't define it. But you're sure you can't define it. But you're sure of it. Is that right? That's right. You can you can know something. You know, um, at a particular level. You know, without definition. See, some things. Definition is a is a dualistic uh, thing. It applies to things that exist in time and space. You know, there are other dimensions. Uh, you know, besides time and space. Uh, such as you know, our length. Uh, sorry, well, 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 such as, as what? I was saying, you can't you can't talk about these things meaningfully. 
um, but you can experience them. There's a difference between talking about something and having um, and experiencing something. Well, no, not um, necessarily, insofar as there are lots of people who are schizophrenic and there are lots of people who are psychotic who have visions, and we know that those visions don't exist in the real world. So although they're having a very vivid subjective experience, it is an illusion. It is, And, of course, if you take drugs or you whatever, right, you can um, do these kinds of things to mess with your consciousness. If you take a LSD and you believe that there's an elephant in your front yard, you believe it very strongly and you believe it very vividly, but it's not true, right? So there is a way to differentiate what goes on in our minds with what is actually occurring in the real world. And we do that through, you know, testability, right? So I would turn to my wife and say, do you see that elephant in the front yard? And if she said yes, and she hadn't taken the LSD, then I would be a little bit more certain. And then I might, I might go out and try and touch the elephant and see if the elephant, you know, made a noise or something. And I'd smell if the elephant had left some deposits on the yard or something. There's ways to actually test for the presence of, of these sorts of things. So if you're going to claim that something exists that is greater than the sum of your and I's consciousness, it's a, what you're doing is putting forward a theory, a proposition, like any scientist or any philosopher who's putting forward or, or a mathematician. You're putting forward a proposition. But if you can't define what you're talking about, and if, you can't, um, if it's impossible to make any sense out of it, but you say, well, I've experienced it, that doesn't mean anything in terms of proving anything, right? Anyone can say that about it anything. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything to you because you've got obviously no idea what I'm talking about. Well, no, it does, it it's not that it doesn't mean me. anything to me. It doesn't mean anything at all. Like you're just saying, I believe in X, and I say, what is X? And you say, well, I can't define it. But then what you're saying, I mean, just, I'm just talking scientifically, right? I mean, you have your own experiences and so on, but I'm just talking from a philosophical or logical or scientific perspective. If you say, I, I propose that X exists, and I say, what is X? And you say, I can't define it, and there's no way to test it, then X by definition doesn't exist, right? I mean, because you can't define what it is, and there's no way to test or, or prove that it exists or doesn't exist. You've had some subjective, subjective experiences, and that's fine, but that doesn't have any relationship to that which exists in reality, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does make sense. But you see, you're, um, the way you're reasoning at the moment, you're, you're putting a lot on, um, you know, the way you reason, it's, uh, you're basing a lot on scientific uh, um, ideas. You see, scientific ideas may not be, um, you know, valid or may not be true. Um, you know, because you have assumptions that, you know, for example, uh, the world exists independently of you and it has all these processes that work in a particular way and you believe causality works in a particular way. For example, billiard ball A hits billiard ball B and billiard ball A uh, causes billiard ball B to move off. This is how this is the basis of scientific thought, which you believe in, but all of that may be completely false. But how would you know, we know that and, it was false? Um, how would well, we know that it I was can false? You, okay, I can give you a way, if you're willing to do it, uh, to, um, to experience another perspective. This isn't going to involve um, LSD, is it? Because I promised my wife that... No, no just kidding, go on. No, no, no. Now, what you do is you need to split your awareness up into two directions. See, at the moment, uh, in general, people looking out into the world and they see relationships, uh, what appears to be relationships, and they start linking things in the world, and, and that's the basis of their, of their logic. 
Now, instead of just looking out in the world, um, get half of your awareness and start observing your thoughts and your emotions uh, while, you know, while you're doing all this. And try and remember your thoughts and your emotions. Now, over a period of time, you'll discover something very startling. You'll discover that every time you think something, that that thought actually happens out in the world out there. You see, and every time you have some sort of an emotion, it influences something out in the world. Now, um, you'll start to realize that, that somehow your thoughts and your emotions are linked. Um, uh, they are actually linked into what's happening in the world out there. Um, I think so I, I think I sorry to interrupt. I think I, I think I understand, but can you give me a, a sort of more concrete example? A more concrete example. Yeah, you said um, if you have a thought. You, sorry, go ahead. You go ahead. I think you understand what I mean. Yeah, what you've got to do is you've got to you've got to see a relationship between what you think and what happens into the world, and then you realise that what you think is actually ends up happening out into the in the world. It's just like a dream. If no, I, I do understand that, dream. but can, can you give me an example? Because you obviously have accepted this for many years, so can you give me an example yeah. of, of how this has occurred in your life? How it's occurred? Well, for example, if I, um, if I for example, get upset, and uh, then uh, all of a sudden my wife might come out with, um, you know, out of the blue uh, with a piece of cake and say, look, Here's a piece of cake. You know, why does that happen? It happens because because something in me has created uh, the, the cake in order so I can eat the cake to suppress my uh, to suppress my upset. You know, all these things are, are linked. That's uh, well, well. Look, you could be, let me interrupt you for just a second because I I, th I think I understand where you're coming from, and I certainly don't mean to to posit a duality like the only thing that means anything is what's out in the world and nothing that occurs within our own souls uh, means anything. I mean, I very much believe in introspection and part of the show that uh, I run, we do, I, I do dream analyses of people because I do believe that the instincts and the unconscious and the metaphorical side of, of the human consciousness is, is incredibly valuable. So I don't mean to sort of sound like a, a cold, calculating science guy who never looks inward. So, so I, I, I'm fully with you on that. However... I think that you're making statements of knowledge that, at least based on the evidence that you're giving me, might be premature. For instance, maybe every time you, uh, if you feel down, you sigh a slightly different way. And your wife, having lived with you for many years, knows the sound of that sigh. And she's like, oh, I know what's going to make him feel better is some cake. Right? So, and hey, I don't get to, I don't, uh, I'm not going to disagree with that. I'm a total sugar junkie myself. So uh, I'm actually just thinking about cake and drooling all over the microphone. I'm going to get a short circuit, I think. But... Um, but it's certainly possible that, um, that these causes and effects that occur could occur through sensual and unconscious manners, right? Through you sigh, your wife says, oh, he's down. Or, or you know, every time around the anniversary of his mother's death, my husband gets kind of down, so I'm going to bring him a piece of cake. And you're not necessarily aware of that process. And so it seems psychic or it seems... But I think that you're making statements about causality that I want cake, somebody brings me cake, that... Um, there could be more simple explanations for other than a superconsciousness or a psychic relation to everything that occurs in the material world. They're just possible. I'm just saying there could be. And I think that until those are all exhausted, I think you're going to have a tough time with the thesis. 
Well, uh, you know, I've, uh, you know, from my point of view, I'm, I'm totally convinced, um, you know, that that, um, that we basically are living in a dream. Um, you know, you, you've had dreams at night, and the thing is, when you have the dream, you you think that what's happening in the dream is real, and that it has nothing to do with you. But as soon as you wake up, you think, well, wait a minute, uh, that was a dream. My mind has created that without me realizing it at the time, which means there are processes happening in your mind and in mind that we're not aware of and that are doing things and, you know, sure. and that are creating a world for us that we, you know, that we don't even realize is happening. Well, uh, wait, 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 you, you, you put into it. I guess interesting. Just, I'm sorry to, to keep interrupting you, but I, I just want to make sure that I, I'm getting what you're saying, because it seems to me that you're putting two things together. The first thing is that you're saying there are things that happen in our dreams at night that have some relationship to the outside world. Absolutely, I totally agree with you. What occurs in no, our... I didn't say that. I, I didn't say that. I, I said, you know, when you have a dream, right? when you have a dream, your mind is creating that dream, but you don't realize it's creating it. Sure. That's what I'm saying. Okay. So um, uh, is, it, is it my understanding then that I am a character in your dream? We're both characters in each other's dreams, basically. Um, and you know, and how would you prove that? Like, how would you? What would be the? What would what would be a criteria by which that thesis could be disproven? Right? Because you know, uh, you're a logical well, fellow, you right? Well, we have to be very careful with the, the word proof because, you know, we're using the word proof very loosely. You know, um, you know, you, you know, a few moments ago, you used the word much more accurately. You know, you said, you know, I can prove to you two plus two is four. Now, when you're using the word proof in that sort of a context, it, it has meaning. But see, sometimes we use the word proof and it has no meaning at all. You know, for example, if I said to you, the chair I'm sitting on is comfortable, and you say, prove it to me. Well, what does that mean? You know, have, the word proof doesn't have any meaning in that context. The only way that you're going to realize my chair is comfortable is if you came and sat in it yourself. Well, if I said to you, you know, the world is a dream, and, and I've, I've discovered that, you know, there's no way I can you know, make you realize that unless you investigate that yourself. And yeah. how, how would I know no then? That, of... Okay, I understand. First of all, you can actually determine whether a chair is comfortable. You can hook up EEGs to people and you can find out if their pleasure or pain centers are being stimulated. I think what is true is that a chair that may be comfortable to one person may be uncomfortable to another person, right? So the same chair might be great for me, but might be not so good for a friend of mine who's 300 pounds or who has a bad back or who prefers, because he's an Indian mystic, to sit on a bed of nails. So there is more objective ways to, I think, figure out if a chair is comfortable than you may be giving credit for. But you use the word investigate, which to me is a rational process, right? You have a criminal investigation, you have a scientific investigation. So how would I go about investigating whether the world is a dream or not? Okay, it's very, it is very easy, but it's not, uh, sorry, it's very simple. It's a very simple idea, but it's not easy to do. What you've got to do is look Monitor your thoughts and your emotions as much as you can and, and, and try and remember them. See, see, people have a forgetting problem. They forget things all the time and they don't know they're forgetting things. You know, 
you know, in essence, people don't know themselves. This is one of the things that uh, uh, Socrates said, you know. We don't know ourselves and, and we're trying to go around trying to, you know, make sense of the world when we don't know ourselves, you know, how, you know, you know how our thoughts and emotions work. You know, for example, what makes us angry? You know, um, what makes us happy? Um, um, all this sort of stuff that people don't realise, and then we try and make sense of the world. It's impossible. You know, we we only have half the picture. So what you've got to do is look at your thoughts and your emotions and remember them, and then experience things in the world and remember that. Then you look at all those events, your thoughts, your emotions and events in the world and you'll see a very startling pattern. You'll discover every time you have a thought that it's actually manifested in the world. Every time you have a, a, an emotion, it's created something in the world. You know, it appears as though you know, things work in the, you know, the opposite to what people um, think it does. For example, people if someone has a car accident and then they get upset, they think that their car accident has caused them to be upset. But actually, it's the other way around. It's the upset that's caused the car accident. It's completely the opposite to what people think it is. And and, and you can and hang on. Know. Let me just interrupt for a second because I I think I I think I'm getting clear onto what you're saying, and I don't think that you or and I are in disagreement. Uh, certainly, if somebody wakes up and they stub their toe and then they notice that their gums are bleeding and then they get a letter from the IRS about a tax audit and then they're going to be upset, they have a fight with their wife, they yell at their kid, they go storming out into the driveway, they're already angry, they go and have a car accident because they're frustrated and not paying attention and absolutely, I mean, this stuff to me is all perfectly rational and sensible and I have no problem with that at all. I mean, I think you and I would be in perfect agreement. My wife is a psychologist and she's a cognitive psychologist so she's very much around you know, thoughts create experience in very many ways. But I think that that's a long way from saying we live in a dream and our thoughts create reality in the way that I could say, I wish I had a sheep on my back and it can come about, right? We can't affect external material reality directly through our thoughts and feelings, but our thoughts and feelings have an enormous amount of impact on the interactions that we have with others. And in turn, right, it's the angry people always seem to attract angry people and the loving people will attract the loving people and the irrational people will attract the irrational people and the abusive, well, you know this pattern, right? I'm, and so, of course, the angry person says, well, of course I'm angry. The whole world is, is pissed off the whole time. And it's like, yes, but the whole world is pissed off because you're pissed off the whole time. So that's what you get coming back. I mean, I certainly agree with all of that, that there's a lot of echoing and back and forth in social interaction. But at a fundamental metaphysical level, our thoughts cannot create or destroy matter. Our thoughts cannot move pictures around the room. Our thoughts cannot cause a car to materialize in our driveway. But, of course, positive thoughts can cause other people to like us so much that they'll give us a car, if that sort of makes sense. But we can't directly affect reality in a material and energy sense, but we can certainly have a great deal of influence on the interactions and the quality of those interactions based on our attitudes. Because you think that matter is somehow separate to your thoughts, you have, you have made that assumption and you have taken that as, as true. But you're that taking it as true as well. And I, again, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we, we, we can't go much further. You're accepting it that it's true because you're talking to me using matter. 
right? You're speaking into a physical microphone using your vocal cords, which are producing sound, which is coming into my headphones. You are talking to me That's using right. external matter, right? So if you say yeah. that I'm assuming that external matter exists, you are doing the same thing exactly. You can't say that you don't believe that external well, matter exists because you're okay. using it. Even, even if I believe otherwise, you would not allow me to speak to you through, say, telepathy unless I... You would not allow me to communicate with you unless I played by your rules. By you my know? rules? What do you mean? Do you think I'm making up right. the rules of sound and of, of auditory capacities? Well, yes, you are. You're, you're saying to me, you can communicate with me, but you only do it through the computer or through voice or through whatever, whatever means you accept. You know, if I came directly into your thoughts and placed ideas into your mind, you know, you would not allow it. So there's something in the universe I think that would be called, the coolest thing ever. I really would think that would be the most amazing thing. It would know? certainly save me a lot of time posting my podcasts if I could actually just wander around <laughs> the astral plane and deposit thoughts in people's heads. That would be fantastic. Um, but I've not found a way to do that. I think it would be the coolest thing in the world if my wife and I could communicate telepathically. I think that would just be anyway, fantastic. Look, uh, before I leave, I, I just want to leave you with, a, with an idea. Um, you say that you know, your, um, your thoughts and your emotions don't uh, um, affect the physical world. Well, let's actually put that to the test. Uh, if you're married, um, for example. Um, try having sex, for example, as much as you can in a week and then look out for certain events that, that may happen in your life and then go without sex for, say, you know, six or seven months, then see what happens to you and, and, and look at the difference. Okay. Yeah? I mean, I think I'd need to see some, some controlled scientific studies before I gave up on sex for six to seven months. But uh, if I understand that you're talking about the theory of attraction, that it goes beyond mere interpersonal stuff, I'm certainly uh, aware of it, and I think it's very interesting. I might try and podcast on it this week. Uh, I certainly, and I'm sorry, we've got somebody else who's waiting to chat. I really do appreciate you jumping in. Freedomainradio.com is the philosophy podcast, and I'm sure that you will have a fun time listening to it. And if you do listen to it and you have objections, uh, deposit them directly in my brain. I'm telling you, if you can do that, uh, you can take over the whole podcast, and you're like the coolest thing ever. Thank you so much for uh, coming in and joining us. I really do appreciate it. And we have somebody else who is waiting to chit-chat Orama. Um, somebody else who sadly can't do the soul brain deposit thing. Oh, did they go away? Yeah, they came. They went. They came. They saw. They conquered. They vanished. So uh, if we have uh, we have a space open on the call Orama, and uh, you are more than welcome. I think that, um, oh, what was that? We had a jog. He already did that in the Jenny podcast. Where is our good friend Jenny? Jenny, Jennyism. You know, if you've ever seen that old Seinfeld where uh, they get Kenny Rogers' chicken and Kramer gets addicted to it at the end of the show, he's just sitting out the window going, Kenny, Kenny, <laughs> Jenny, Jenny. <laughs> That's what we need, right? Eight six seven five three zero nine. That's right. All right, um, uh, the singer is back, so not me. This is the person who's listening. Let's try and get her in, or him, could be. Let's not pre-guess. And Skype, I think, has just had everyone vanish on me. It's always fun when it does that. Just hang on there, Mr. Pink, um, and we will have you in in just a second. As soon as Skype returns to me, the listener list, it's playful. You know, it comes and it goes. Ah, here we go. All right, so let's see if we can't find Mr. or Mrs. All Caps. Ah, 
There you are. Uh, I'm not sure why you're not showing up in my list of people here. Can you see him? Him, her? Hmm. Sorry, we have uh, somebody here who is uh, on the... Uh, oh, it says offline. She's offline. Oh, oh, we have two. I see, I see, I see. Okay, my mistake. Yes, you're on. Life is a name of loving. If you're attempting to deposit thoughts directly into my brain, please enter 25 cents. Life is name of loving, also known as pink you. You are on. You are off. Oh, playful. All right. I'm just going to check my uh, PayPal because people actually, I'll absolutely say people have deposited thoughts directly in my brain. Oh, okay. Uh, Absolutely. We will try and find the next person who's coming up. Sorry about all of this. No, I'm just... um, Ah, here we go. Okay. Yes, sir. Somebody who had just uh, recently come on uh, wanted to talk. Go ahead. Yeah, hello. Can hello. you hear me? Yeah, I sure can. How are you doing? Hello. Yeah, I'm doing great. Have you seen this movie, uh, like Groundhog Day? Yes. Yes. I feel like my life is exactly like this movie. It's, it's just routine all over the place. Well, why haven't we talked before, then? I feel like we should have talked before. Well, this is our chance. This is our chance. Okay, let's see if we can break the cycle. I'm sorry, just before we go on, I think your your speakers and your microphone are going together. I think we're getting a bit of a loop. If you could just turn your speakers down a little bit. Now I'm all ears. Uh, Tell me your troubles, brother. All right. So it goes like this. It's it's like I feel like I'm in a constant routine. Whatever I do is is not making me go forward. It's like I'm constantly stuck in one sort of dimension, and I can't seem to get a grip on, on life in terms of, of exploring the beauty, exploring these other dimensions. I, I just don't feel the satisfaction anymore. Right. Right. Now, did you feel satisfaction at some point in your life before? Well, I can't really say I, I did. I can't. It's just, it's just I, I don't see the, the, the beauty. It's just a, a mechanical process in, in a way. Right. So you feel like you get up and you go to work and you come home and you eat dinner, you watch a bit of TV, you go to bed, you get up. Like it's like the same day over and over. That's sort of what you mean. Like you're not exactly. feeling your, your life doesn't have a lot of shape. It doesn't have momentum. You don't know where you're going. When you think, where am I going to be in 10 years? It's kind of like, well, I'm going to be here, but grayer, right? <laughs> I'm going to be here, but older. So it's exactly. like you, 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 you think I, I, life is like a revolving door. You're trying to go through it to get from one place to the next, right? So from your youth to your middle age, to your marriage, to your kids or whatever, right? You're trying to go through this revolving door. But the problem is there's no exit on the revolving door, and you just feel like you're stuck in this revolving door going round and round. Is that... Is that sort of what's going on? My thought exactly. Right. This right. is it. This is. I try to resort like right. to philosophical type of books, and it just seems to make matters worse. It's just. It's not getting anywhere. I'm, I'm still. I'm still on my couch reading a book. Right. Right. Now, right. what is it that? Right. 
would be your no. criteria for having a life that had broken out of a kind of dismal cycle. Like if you were to call in next week and you said, I am now standing on the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, I'm buck naked, and I'm having an affair with Pink. Would that be the way that you would know that you had broken a cycle? Like what's your testability for this? How would you know that you had broken a cycle and that you were living the kind of life that you wanted? What would that life look like? I've always, in a sense, envied those uh, sort of writers like Jack Kerouac and Hunter S. Thompson, their ability to go on the road, experience life, and all and all this uh, dynamic. Try to actually live. They are I think the sub is going down because I kind of you keep uh, you keep uh, kind of fading out into this burbly underwater thing. So I'm going to just, I heard Jack Kerouac, so I'm going to just mention it. I'm so sorry, I can't get more information from you, but uh, you'll have to wait until uh, the Soviets stop jamming your sub. But um, uh, first of all, Jack Kerouac lived a miserable existence. I mean, I know that it seems cool, uh, but if you read On the Road with, any, like, with real careful attention, uh, it's a completely psychotic book about a totally miserable and dissociated life. And he died young, and he was miserable, and, and never had any f fundamentally satisfying relationships. And so that kind of stuff is really dangerous. I'd be careful about saying that the opposite of boredom is chaos. That is a very dangerous premise to have. The opposite of boredom is not chaos, right? And and that I'd sort of and I know that that may not be in the books on philosophy that you're reading, but I would say that. If you have a standard called, well, I have this mundane life, so the only way to make it non-mundane is to go and jump off a cliff, well, it certainly won't be mundane to jump off a cliff, but it may not be the best uh, solution for, for your issue. The way that I've sort of tried to work this kind of stuff, and this is just my opinion, I don't have any you know, magic answers, is that I think that you need to figure out what is going to be a, an acceptable, rational valid and good challenge for you to take on. And I think for me, it's been, I mean, I'm just about to quit my job and go and do this internet philosophy thing uh, full time. God help me and see, see what happens. That is a challenge that I think I can pull off because I've been running this podcast and it's been becoming quite successful for like a year and a, and a bit or whatever. So I've got some experience under my belt and that's what I've been working towards. And to me, it's a good thing to do because I think philosophy is a very important thing to talk about. And it's possible for me to do it. And I think I have some skills in this area. So I think that can work. And so that has made my life very exciting, <laughs> sometimes a little too exciting. But that has made my life very exciting. So what I would say is that probably what's going on for you is that you don't have a goal that is, ugh, I hate to use this word, so I apologize for it. You don't have a goal that's moral. And what I mean by that is not, you know, you got to quit your job and go feed starving kids in India or anything like that. But I think you have to figure out what is good, goodness. What is goodness for you? What is virtue? For me, it has a lot to do with being courageous in the face of adversity, with trying to be um, positive in the face of disagreement, with trying to get people dislodged from their mental habits and their addiction to fantasy, which we all have. I don't know the degree to which you have it. That, to me, is like a moral and good thing to do, and I'm willing to make a lot of sacrifices to get there, right? I mean, not really that much of a sacrifice, because I like it very much. I would say that you need to have a vision of your life that encapsulates what it means to be courageous 
or to live with integrity or to have virtue. And for you, it might be quitting your job and going on the road like Jack Kerouac and keeping a diary. Maybe that's what you do to get there because, you know, life's not, <laughs> life is not around forever and every day that we spend not being happy is a day that just drops off the truck and we don't ever get to drive back and pick it up. So I would say that if I would... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I just uh, this is this is the thing I'm I'm looking for. It's, it's the ability. I, I I can't seem to work up the courage to to do that in a sense. Right, right, and and I, I, I right. fully understand that. And what I would say about that, and I'm sorry again, I'd like to ask you more questions, but I'm just getting every third word. Um, but if you lack the courage which we all have that problem. Courage is, is, is a, a scarce commodity in this world, so don't feel bad about that. But the only way to overcome fear is with desire, right? The only way to overcome fear is with desire. And we all know this from dating, right? So there's some girl that you want to ask out, and you're terrified of asking her out, of course, because it's nerve-wracking unless you're, I don't know, Joe Studmuffin, which I can't speak to. But you ask this girl out, and you're, you're very much afraid of doing it, but the only thing that gives you courage is the desire for it. And the, the, the idea of living a life as a philosopher without having to do all of that traveling and eating hemlock, to me, is a great uh, opportunity. So I have fear of quitting my job, leaving my career, and doing this. But the desire overcomes that, uh, overcomes that fear. And so that's, that's the challenge. You have to give yourself a goal that is going to energize yourself, that is going to make you want to do it to the point where courage isn't as much of an issue. You can't will courage. You can't just say, well, I'm going to change my life and I'm going to will it. Because you have to have a goal that says, okay, I'm terrified to cross these mountains, but on the other side is a land of milk and honey uh, where all the women look like uh, um, my wife. <laughs> so uh, you, you have to find something that is going to make you motivated in terms of desire. And I would say that uh, you need to find some, some goal that is going to make you feel enriched and it's going to make you feel like your life has real meaning, it has real value, and that usually has something to do with courage around virtue. And uh, the way that I use the term virtue, I'm not going to get into it here, but it's not a boring, droning, Catholic, Mother Teresa kind of duty and obligation makes you not even want to get out of bed. But uh, if you'd like to go to freedomainradio.com, there's a whole series of podcasts there you can listen to that I think will help you at least understand about a different way of looking at virtue that it's something that's powerful and fun and highly motivating that can get you out of this cycle. The only way thing that's going to get you out of this revolving door is smashing through the windows. And the only way you're going to smash through the windows is if there's something that you so desperately want on the other side of that that you simply can't stand going around one more time. Uh, I just want to ask you one more thing. If, if I uh, have been a helpful uh experience to me, if I were to make a donation, and for all the other listeners, how, would, how is it possible? Where would you go to make a donation to your cause? Uh, can you just try that one more time? You're just cutting in the lab a little bit. Yeah, I'm just saying, uh, for, for me, myself, personally, you've been a lot of help, and for all the others, I think, uh, and how, how is it possible to make a donation to your cause? Oh, absolutely. Um, I don't like to talk about that. <laughs> Just kidding. I love to talk about that. Um, to make a donation, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Um, uh, first of all, I need my car waxed and uh, my, my lawn. So if you live anywhere in Mississauga, Ontario, just let me know. Um, plus, Christina would like a quiet evening out. No, uh, so, no. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, to go to the website, freedomainradio.com, there's two ways that you can donate. Well, three, I guess. 
if you've got a visa, and if you live in New York, I know you have a visa, then you can click on the PayPal account. You don't need a PayPal account. You can just donate money through your visa. Totally safe. Uh, totally, uh, it's, they're, they're like a world-renowned company. They've been around for like 10 years. So it's a totally safe way to donate me some money. Um, secondly, if you have an eGold account, then you can transfer money that way. That's also on the main page of the website. And I really do appreciate it. Do call back in when you have... Um, more than, I don't know, two yogurt cups and a piece of string connecting you to the server just because I'd like to ask you some more questions, but it's getting a bit soupy. So uh, thank you so much for calling in. Uh, do keep us posted. And again, All right. thank you. Man. Thank you. I appreciate that. Look forward to your donation. I, th I really appreciate that. Um, it, means, uh, it means even more now than it did before uh, because I have to make a certain amount of money. Um, otherwise, uh, I have to go live in the garage. So, uh, and that's cold. And echoey, so the podcast quality would go down. All right, so if we have uh, somebody else, is this gentleman back? Uh, gentleman back? Uh, yeah, somebody wanted to talk about the soldier? Yeah, sure, we can go all over the place. No need to follow a sequence. Uh, there's no need to uh, do that because I'm not going to fight tangents. It would be absolutely wrong. How do we talk on this thing? Your Jack Kerouac reference needs rebuttal. Is that you talking? You are a Brit now resident of the USA, NESPA, Canada. Well, I'm sorry. Um, if you want to type your, my Jack Kerouac uh, rebuttal in, uh, I would be more than happy to, to listen to it. If I've got something wrong about old Jack, I certainly would be uh, more than happy to correct myself. So um, uh, if you can hear this, Mr. B. H., uh, feel free to correct me about Kerouac. So uh, let me know. All right. Do we have anyone else? currently waiting now good heavens this could be a shorter show this could be a shorter show last chance people last chance christina's gonna come in <laughs> oh um oh did we have someone they're in they're out they're up and down like the assyrian empire uh, all right enough python skippy bush kangaroo chimper at me Hello. Hello. I tried uh, last week, but uh, you, you you couldn't hear me. Ah, well, I can hear you now fine, Hello? so uh, welcome back. Okay. Well, uh, I have a question about uh, animal rights. Animal rights? Let's go for it. Um, yes. Um, you talk about uh, universally preferable behavior for humans. And uh, animals have their own uh, universally preferable behavior, I think. But um, sometimes there, uh, there can be a conflict because uh, uh, what the animals want is not the same as what we want. Like uh, we like to eat, them before, for instance. So you, you could have, uh, for instance, a chicken. And... Um, the chicken uh, will certainly not prefer it to be eaten, but we do. How do you resolve such a conflict? Well, I've <laughs> you've you absolutely zeroed in on something that I don't have any good answers for, and uh, I will do a bizarre epileptic thrash around, and you can tell me whether I hit anything or not, because uh, animal rights is one of these tricky uh, issues that I don't have any clear answers for. This is sort of what I think, and this is how I live, and, and this could be the worst thing in the world if we find out that 
the universal consciousness uh, that this earlier gentleman was talked about was entirely composed of chicken brain, then uh, we, of course, are the worst evil genocidal Kentucky Fried assholes on the planet. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about it, and then you can tell me what. But this is not uh, in not a fully formed position or anything like that. So, uh, so first of all, I don't believe that there's universally preferable behavior for animals because animals don't have theories of morality. They don't have um, the consciousness to create ethical systems. So I don't think there's such a thing as universally preferable behavior. There is such a thing as universally preferable behavior for nature, which is that if you have the power to exploit other living creatures, then you should do so. That is absolutely a universally preferable behavior for, uh, for nature. Uh, right or wrong, I'm not even going to argue, but there's no question that uh, human beings are the most successful species on the planet, um, at least until global warming drowns us, which is not going to do. But um, we are the most successful creatures on the planet because we have most um, uh, advantageously engineered ourselves or evolution has engineered us to the point where we can most successfully exploit other animals. There's no question that if the chickens had evolved first, that we all be sitting in the chicken matrix uh, providing them with food. So uh, nature uh, advances if you want to use the idea that we have consciousness and a mind as an advance over, say, an amoeba, and I think it is, you know, in terms of greater complexity and the ability to, I don't know, do something like this, rather talk about philosophy, I think it's an advance. Nature only advances through uh, both cooperation and exploitation. And the cooperation is the more of the relationship that we have with the livestock, wherein uh, certain, certain species are kept alive and, and flourish because of human interaction, and certain species don't, of course, where they're less useful to us. I mean, there's no possibility of the cow becoming extinct, but the greater spotted owl, who knows, right? I mean, that does seem to be the case. So I find it uh, that the only reason we have the ability to exploit animals, exploit being used in the non-Marxist sense, just to use for, you know, in the same way that, I don't know, I exploit the carpet so my feet aren't cold, but that has only really come about because nature um, has this co-opetition thing, right, where animals both cooperate and compete with each other, and there's no possibility of having any kind of ethical system with regards to animals because they don't have ethics. In fact, nature doesn't really have ethics. Ethics had to wait for human consciousness uh, to come along. But certainly, from a pure biological standpoint, the universally preferable behavior is to maximize your resource consumption and not worry too much about that which you are exploiting with the understanding that we have as a conscious and sentient being that, you know, like the, the rabbits in Australia, I remember this when I was a kid, the rabbits got loose in Australia and they ate all the grass and there were just like billions of bunnies and you couldn't put your foot down anywhere without treading I, I on some rabbit. And then they starved to death because they ate all the grass and we don't want to be that and we can actually sort of no, foresee no, the consequences they, they of that. The I'm sorry? They started to spread uh, disease, myxomatose. The nice bunnies? To really? The rabbits. Oh, oh, the human yes. beings started to spread disease. Yes. I Among see, I the, see. The rabbits. Right. Yes. And, I mean, we, um, in some ways, and the last thing I'll say is that, of course, it, it really depends on your definition of success as well. Um, some of the most successful species are insects. I mean, what, 80% of the biomass in the world is is insects. And... What is it that some 
biologists said that if there is a god, he seems to be inordinately fond of beetles, of which there are like 800,000 species, plus George, Paul, Ringo, and John. And uh, last but not least, of course, the, the most successful species in terms of longevity and in terms of just you can't swat them with a, a fly swatter are bacteria and viruses, of course, have lasted forever and incredibly successful, can survive incredible cold uh, and so on. So um, I, I eat, uh, uh, I'm not too much of a carnivore. My wife's a vegetarian, uh, but I will eat uh, food, uh, meat from time to time. Uh, I work out at a gym. I just can't get the energy that I need from vegetables and uh, cheese. So uh, I will occasionally eat meat. I do think that it's something that an all-meat diet is both sort of from a health standpoint and from an environmental standpoint somewhat irresponsible. So I think that uh, animals are a resource that, that should be you know, harvested in the way that we... You've got to eat something, right? Even if you kill a plant, that's a living being that you're killing, right? So I think that uh, we should use uh, animals uh, as a resource. I think we should treat them as humanely as possible, and we should kill them as painlessly as possible. Um, but I don't believe that there's a social contract that we can enter into with as far as animals go. So that's my total nonsense position as far as uh, animal rights go. So enough of me. Uh, let's, uh, let's hear from you. Well, I, I think there is uh, a difference uh, between animals because uh, when you look at uh, the higher primates, they seem to have a, a kind of ethics uh, uh, that Professor De Waal has done studies on that. So it depends. Well, I agree. I'm sorry to interrupt uh, you right I after agree. I told you to speak, but there's a difference between having sort of mutually beneficial behavior and the altruistic reciprocity that occurs in primates. There's a difference between that and having a theory of ethics, if that makes any sense. Well, we, we can't know if they have a theory of, <laughs> of ethics <laughs> because they can't talk, of course. So that would be a little uh, difficult. The only thing you can do is uh, observe their uh, their behavior, of course. But uh, that would be no different uh, from aliens uh, visiting Earth and watching humans, for instance, which couldn't understand our language. Well, and, but I mean, uh, if aliens uh, aliens would sorry aliens wouldn't be able to fly to Earth unless in they the, could the, agree on a destination, which would require language on their part. So they would understand the concept of language, and they would understand that we used language. They just may not be able to understand the content. Well, okay, but they they, they would uh, probably study our behavior and, and deduct some some things things from that, and so it, it, it it's not so so easy. Uh, to say they have no uh, universally preferable behavior. There's no evidence, and you're, you're quite right. There's no evidence of universally preferable behavior. They might actually be engaged no, in the is, psychic chicken soup that the other guy was talking about. If you are about. speaking about ethics, your behavior, they have, if you, if you ask a primatologist, he, he studies the behavior. You are talking about preferable behavior. You yes, but universally preferable behavior, which is, a, which is an abstraction. Universally preferable behavior is an abstraction. Like we would say that human beings prefer to sleep. That's a description. That's not a prescription, right? That's just a saying human beings prefer to sleep. Whereas saying human beings shouldn't kill other human beings is a prescriptive form of behavior. And certainly we can look at the great apes and other animals and see quite a degree of cooperation, and they care for their young, and they mourn the loss of their mates, and they certainly have rich and emotional lives. But there's no universally preferable behavior that you can reason about with a with a monkey, right? 
at least that we know how to do. Well, okay. Then uh, the next thing is you say uh, we, 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 uh, we can uh, exploit uh, animals. Yes? Well, all animals exploit animals. That's not uh, a, anything that's particular to human beings. Animals, okay, because we are a higher species than, for instance, the primates, the other primates. No, I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, a shark is a more primitive species than me, but if it's hungry and I'm around and the only thing to eat, then the shark is going to exploit me. I mean, all animals okay. exploit it. It's a, matter of, it's a matter of power, not of sophistication. Okay, a matter of power. Now, for instance, um, there, 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 we develop an AI, an artificial intelligence. And um, that would be uh, dangerous when we continue uh, in your line of thought because uh, that would have uh, probably much power over us, and then that would be uh, able to exploit us. Well, sure, but the difference is that um, a, an advanced robot of some kind would have the ability to enter into a social contract with us. It would have the ability to, uh, for us to reason together about mutually beneficial rules of behavior that we could agree to stick with or deviate from and accept punishment for that deviation from and so on, so I think the difference is that once you have the capacity for language, and this is something that uh, if somebody has an IQ of 60 or whatever and commits a crime, they don't have the moral responsibility because they don't have the capacity to understand the concepts, they don't have the capacity to process the language and to understand the consequences of their behavior and so on. So I think the difference is, and you, uh, this is just off the top of my head, so please, I, uh, you could be totally right. This is just my thought, that a superintelligent robot... Uh, would not have the right to exploit us any more than a very intelligent person has the right to exploit a person of average intelligence because universally preferable behavior like don't steal, don't kill, don't rape, don't, don't assault, um, those don't take a lot of IQ to, to sort of process, but they do take a certain amount of conceptual ability and language skills, which so far only human beings have. We would never be so stupid relative to a hyper-intelligent robot that we would be... Uh, unable to comprehend the basic rules of, of morality, if that, if that makes sense. Well, now, in, uh, then you, you, you take a difference of IQ as a standard. Well, sure, absolutely. There, there is a difference of IQ. Uh, there is a certain uh, level uh, at which somebody cannot really be considered morally responsible, a human being, for his or her actions because uh, the, the brain is not functioning uh, well and, and so on. Temporary insanity is, is sort of another defense. So. Yeah, I, certainly, I, I accept that. I mean, I'm no, I don't, no legal scholar, but that seems to be a fairly reasonable provision to have in a legal system. Okay, that was all I had uh, to ask for now. Well, thank you. That's a very, very interesting question. Um, uh, you can go to the board. I, I know I've seen debates in there before, but I don't feel particularly well-versed in this kind of stuff. So uh, if you'd like to go on the Free Domain Radio board, there's some very, uh, very smart people who are very interested in debating this more. So thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Uh, that was a, a very interesting topic, and uh, feel free to... If you listen to this later and you find that I'm totally talking out of my ear, then uh, you know, call back in next week or, or come to the boards and, and let me know. But I don't, have, uh, I don't have any of this sort of stuff nailed down. I've spent my time on other things, so... Thank you so much. It was an excellent conversation. Uh, somebody has asked, 
Um, would it be ethical for highly evolved flesh-eating aliens to eat us if they were millions of years ahead of us? In evolving, we would be cows or even insects compared to them at evolutionary standards. Again, this is, to me comes back to the social um, contract capacity, the, the reasoning and language capacity. It doesn't take a lot of IQ to understand that you shouldn't kill other people with whom you can enter into a social contract. Uh, and again, I use the term social contract in a very loose kind of way. So that's sort of my approach to it. But again, I'm no expert in this area by any stretch of the imagination. So, so in the conversation, we're down to chimps inventing poo gloves. So I may have missed something a little bit here. I did? Did I, did I miss something? Can we do just a few minutes, if you don't mind, sweetie, on what to look for in a good therapist, and then we'll close up? Sure. Okay, this is to turn it over to the brains of the outfit. I, I suspect that um, there have been some questions recently about how to find a good therapist. They, I certainly got one on Ask a Therapist, and I'm not sure if it's been floating around on the board as well. Um, you know, I think what makes a good therapist for different, is different for, for different people. I think the most important thing that you need to have with your therapist is a good rapport, an ability to exchange ideas without feeling that your therapist is... is um, uh, humiliating you or shaming you in the therapy se- therapy sessions or judging you. It's it's sometimes a therapist will need to to ask questions to understand your perspective. That doesn't imply that that you're being judged, uh, but to help you to understand uh, where you're coming from. So it's always 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 important to have a therapist uh, who is uh, open to uh, discussion and debate. Um, what else makes a good therapist? There are there are. Um, here in Canada, and I'm sure in other places uh, in the United States and, and Europe as well, and, and maybe uh, Asia, who knows, probably, um, there are regulated therapists and there are unregulated therapists. And that just, uh, that of course, has everything to do with government standards. So whether or not you're seeing someone who is regulated doesn't, or not regulated doesn't mean that the, the individual is more or less qualified. Uh, there are people here in Ontario with PhDs in psychology who have not gone through the registration process and they're practicing as therapists. Does that make them any better or worse than those who have gotten the registration? Uh, no, it doesn't. So uh, although with registration here at Canada, the United States, with registration, at least you have people who have to follow certain ethical guidelines and, and uh, principles. And if you have any uh, legitimate complaints about these people, you can certainly take it up with a complaints committee and uh, prevent any further public harm if, if that's the case. Um, I don't know. What else? Uh, what else do you people? There are many, many different schools of therapy. Um, and, you know, literature supports different schools of therapy for different uh, types of, uh, different types of illnesses or ailments. If you're looking at a, a clinical depression, um, interpersonal therapy or cognitive behavior therapy, uh, treatment modalities have had excellent, um, feedback or have had excellent empirical support, uh, for, uh, in terms of positive outcome. There's uh, my own my own belief about sort of the the traditional uh, Freudian psychoanalysis. Um, again, take it for all it's worth. I don't particularly think it's very useful. Um, it is a very very long term. If you're going to do the psychoanalytic uh, approach, it could be ten, fifteen, twenty five years with an analyst. <laughs> well, you know, just take a look at Woody Allen. <laughs> If you want some evidence of whether or not that type of theory or that type of practice is uh, beneficial. Um, there are many kinds of uh, approaches. I don't think to mean to say that anyone is better than another. Again, it will depend on um, 
on the relationship that the individual develops with the therapist, that therapeutic relationship is very, very key because what plays out in the individual's own personal life ends up recreating itself in the psychotherapy. And a good therapist will be able to pick up on the cues and the clues from the individual to help him or her um, understand what's going on and what his or her behavior, what, what effects his or her behavior has on the receiving end. And we get to work those things out in the therapy process. And that's one of the most powerful things about therapy. Um, no, not really. Uh, I, Steph's asking me to go into this into a little bit more detail. I'm not sure that I know how to without... Uh, Steph, do you have any ideas? Um, oh, I was lying down, taking a rest. <laughs> <laughs> I just handed over the reins. I don't know how you explain that. Yeah, I mean, there's this counter-transference, the transference, and, and the stuff that you... The, well, I mean, if you have trust issues in your life based on your history then when you get into a therapeutic relationship, you will, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know this a lot better than I do, but if you, if you have problems trusting women and you get into a relationship with a female therapist, there will come a time where trust will become an issue with your female therapist. And the whole point of, well, not the whole point, a central point of therapy is that your therapist will be aware that that is going to happen and will be conscious of that when it does happen and will make you aware of what you're doing to make it happen. And then she will try to correct you. <laughs> no, just no, but I mean, th that's, that's an important thing. So much of what goes on in people's life is, is unconscious, right? So if you're an angry person, then other people will just get angry. If you're an angry person, at some point you're going to get angry with your therapist. And your therapist will be aware that that's coming. And we'll be aware and we'll be, we'll be sure to say to you, okay, what you just said to me there was evidence to me that you're angry at me. Now, as an angry person, the first thing you'll say is, I wasn't angry at you. I'm not angry at you. I think you're a great therapist. Like, you'll deny it, right? Because that's what angry people do when they're caught, right? That's what bullies do when you catch them is they say, well, I was just, uh, we were practicing the luge, sir. So... A competent therapist will be aware of these kinds of things and will, through her own awareness of the interaction, will tell you what the interaction is like on the other side. What is it like being on the other side of you? What is, like, what is it like being on the receiving end of you? And even though you will deny it, she will continue to reiterate that point until you get what it's like to be on the other side of you. And that's the basic empathy training that so many of us didn't get when we were younger. So I don't like to be uh, corrected by female authority figures, obviously, because my mother was such a bully and a brute, right? So at one point, when I was um, uh, vociferously agreeing with my therapist about something that I didn't really have any opinion about, she said, uh, stop trying to control me. And she said it quite sharply. And this was some time into our therapy, so I was uh, already out of the fetal position and was fairly heavily medicated, and uh, I had my, um, this little doll thing that I carried in my pants. Anyway, we don't have to get into all of that. But she corrected me quite sharply, and it was really startling. And we spent a couple of sessions just on that moment. Like, we spent three hours talking about that particular moment where she was saying something, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's true, but, 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 right? Because I was trying to swamp her. I was trying to sort of short-circuit her and get control of the conversation again, but I couldn't say 
Um, I hate to interrupt you, but, right? This stuff I all learned later. So she sharply corrected me, which was nerve-wracking for me because it brought back sort of stuff from my own history. And yet she was aware that she was doing it, and we talked about it, and how she felt to be on the receiving end of that unconscious impulse within me to take control of the conversation by really agreeing too much with someone to try and gain control back. And again, I can't remember all of the details, but she was uh, aware that we had established a trusting enough relationship that she could correct me without me being too upset and we could talk about it. And then I got a real sense what it was like to be on the other side of me. And now we all know that to some degree. We all know what it's like, I mean, to be on the other. But when you're acting in an unconscious manner, we don't know what it's like to be on the receiving end. That's the whole point of the unconscious thing. So a good therapist will be aware that that is happening and will tell you what it's like to be on the receiving end of you and then you can step through all of the detail and the complexity that goes into producing that interaction so that you can begin to pull it apart and begin to reshape it into something more productive. You see, I'm actually quite good at doing it in therapy, but I'm not very good at explaining it the way Steph just did. Whereas I'm very good at explaining it, but I'd be a really bad therapist. <laughs> it's like, no, it's like this. See, I'm going to have to interrupt you again. <laughs> Um, what else makes a good therapist? Um, yeah, empathy, warmth, uh, um, yeah, humor, um, just, just a nice personable person. Uh, I get a lot of people who come in and say, well, I went to see a therapist and, and, uh, you know, she was rude or he was, he was cold or, uh, I had one, one person come and say to me, my therapist fell asleep during our session. So I can't imagine that that would be a good therapist. Make sure your therapist is alert. Um, if anybody has any specific questions about, you know, their therapy or, or, um, what they will, what, you know, their own experiences in therapy and, and, uh, they want to ask them, I'd be happy to take some questions. And somebody seems like you've made a change there. Uh, okay. I'll do it. Yeah, um, just like to respond to the uh, previous caller before you about the um, if aliens came to Earth and uh, they were looking for a high intelligence. Um, if they were if they were seeking high intelligence, um, they may they may probably seek the dolphins rather than us because um, they may judge um, on how you re in. Uh, react with the environment that you're in, how much damage that you do to it. I mean, the, the dolphins seem to be in harmony with their environment. They've done no damage to it, where we have. So um, I know we've got the same size brains, and um, it's quite possible they, they would see the dolphins as a higher form of life form than us. Now, the other form of consciousness, I've often wondered, um, well, we are an electrical and, and chemical brain, or an electrical and chemical computer. The Earth is also electrical and chemical. Is it possible that the Earth has got consciousness? And also, is it possible that the Internet one day will spring into consciousness because of the sheer amount of electrical connections there? You know, I, I uh, wonder sometimes what uh, consciousness is, and how would you judge if there is consciousness? I don't know if anybody would like to add anything to that. 
Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I don't know. I don't know for sure. Of course, consciousness remains something that's very hard to study. I mean, we obviously uh, couldn't be smarter than our own consciousness, so it's hard for us to study ourselves. But the one thing I'll say about the dolphins is that we have a tendency as a species, and it does come a little bit out of the environmental movement, which I don't loathe or anything. I mean, I think it's, it's fine. I just wish it was a little bit, well, a whole lot less interested in using government power to achieve its ends. But there is no, we, we have a strong tendency to sentimentalize the animal kingdom, especially cute, smiley animals like dolphins. The only reason that dolphins don't further exploit their environment is because they can't, because they can't build nets, because they don't have opposable thumbs. Uh, dolphins are not wiser or smarter than human beings. Uh, neither are budgerigars, neither are all of the other cute creatures that we sort of have an affinity for. Um, it's simply, it, it is the nature of biological organisms to exploit uh, the environment around them to maximize their own reproducibility. And we are very good at doing that. If dolphins had evolved the opposable thumb or if the dolphin had wandered out onto land instead of the whatever it was that did it, uh, that, that ended up with us being there, then the dolphin would be uh, doing exactly what we're doing. Uh, the one thing I would say is that we do need to get rid of the government so that we can have a much more balanced relationship to our own ecosystem. And I certainly agree that we want to look to the longevity of uh, the resources around us, and that means privatizing them and not having them open to this sort of public exploitation where people don't have the responsibility of ownership. But there's no question that uh, dolphins would exploit nature as much as they humanly could, so to speak, and they only don't because they can't. There's no sentimentality in nature, though there is within us. And uh, I don't, yeah, I mean, there's electrical energy and so on. That's true, of course, of, of a power station that there's electricity and chemistry. Uh, consciousness has some pretty specific characteristics, though, around the ability to, to conceptualize, to use language, to, to reason and so on. And there's no evidence of that, that spontaneously being created. I mean, it took, what, five billion years of evolution for human beings to come around. I, and that was with very purposeful kind of mounting the ladder of complexity up through the evolutionary chain. I don't think that it's going to just spontaneously happen any more than, you know, a cloud is going to spontaneously form into an exact replica of Mount Rushmore. I don't think that accident will produce consciousness. I think that it is only evolution that has produced consciousness. Yeah, I've often thought as as us as um, I mean, perhaps the Earth hasn't got consciousness, but perhaps it's a system that has a autonomic consciousness. In other words, um, like the brain controls breathing and 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 the heart. Maybe there's an autonomic system within the Earth, and and we, due to our size, we would only be a bacteria. Um, compared to the Earth, and, and maybe if, if we upset the ecosystem too much, it may turn against us via the autonomic system and eject us from the Earth. Well, it could happen, but the thing I would be concerned about, and I, I get a sense of this from you, I'm not going to guess that it is or isn't the case, you can let me know. The thing I'm a little concerned about is you seem to feel that we're not part of the natural order. Is that true? Because you seem to say us and nature or us and the Earth or us and the ecosystem. Uh, human beings are completely part of the ecosystem. Uh, we are doing exactly what human beings are designed to do. We are doing exactly what all living organisms are designed to do, which is to intelligently uh, exploit the resources around them. And we are uh, completely and totally part of nature. A jumbo jet 
is completely and totally part of nature. It is composed of all natural ingredients. Everything that is created, that plastic, is completely part of nature. Uh, the house that I'm living in, this microphone, the internet, is all completely part of nature. We are in the ecosystem. We are not separate from the ecosystem. Unless I'm missing something very obvious, which is, of course, more than possible. But I do get the feeling that you see human beings as estranged or alienated from the natural world or from the ecosystem or from, the, from, the, from nature or from the world. I don't really quite understand that because we are a product of nature and we have some pretty specific characteristics relative to other species, but uh, I don't see that we're separate from nature or separate from the world, unless I'm missing something. I'm just guessing that's sort of where you're coming from. Does that, does that make any sense to you? No, it doesn't. No, I'm not actually coming from there. I sort of know we're a part of the um, ecosystem and we're a predator and we're top of the, the uh, pecking order. And um, predators have always kept the uh, DNA healthy. It, it, it takes off the weakest. I know that we've evolved probably where we aren't doing that now. Um, but that's not the issue. Um, when you look at nature, if uh, one part becomes more dominant than the rest, there's normally something that happens um, to reset the ecosystem again. In other words, if there's, if there's millions of buffaloes um, charging across um, America, then something would, would happen to um, reduce that. Um, and I think that you, you do see this resetting happening quite a lot. And, uh, as I said, whether the Earth may do this through weather, through, you know, whatever, you know, whatever. Well, it certainly could happen. And, and the, the thing I'll just sort of end up by saying, you could be right. And, of course, where there is a great proliferation of species, there's greater possibilities for the transmission of, of disease and so on. So that does happen. And I, you know, I think this is sort of my basic opinion. I mean, I'm very much... Uh, uh, keen on the natural world. I love hiking in forests and so on, and not so much the bears. But um, but the thing that I think is important to remember is that nature is a total bitch. Nature is a total bitch. When we didn't have our hands around the throat of Mother Nature, she was kicking our ass. We had a life expectancy of 20 years at the time of the Roman Empire, not like two, less than 2,000 years ago. Uh, a toothache could get you killed because of bacteria, uh, we had the Black Death, uh, where uh, half of the population of Europe was wiped out in successive waves over the course of 150 years from the end of the 14th century. That I think it's possible for us to sentimentalize nature because we have managed to subdue nature. But nature, you know, unfettered free nature, is a total bitch, and nature will, will kill you for stubbing your toe if you break skin and a particular kind of infection comes in and you don't have antibiotics. So... It certainly is the case, I believe, that there is uh, risks involved in what we're doing. And so, but the alternative to me, I, I'll always take a possible risk over a, de a, a definite risk. So like if I'm in a car that's rolling towards a cliff edge, I don't really care how fast the car's going, I'm going to bail. Because I know for sure if I go over the cliff edge, I'm dead, whereas I'll take any chance. So for me, yeah, we're on a bit of a risky endeavor as far as managing our ecosystem and our environment. And, and there's certain aspects of pollution that are new. But pollution really, to some degree, has to be defined as that which is damaging to, to human life. And in that sense, there's like no pollution uh, on the planet that matches what went on in the Roman Empire or in the Middle Ages. So uh, for me, uh, yeah, we've got to keep an eye on things and uh, we do have to um, 
uh, to marshal our resources and use our intelligence and use the power of the free market to make sure that resources are extended. But uh, for me, it's like nature is, is fine now because it's like the church, right? And the church is more peaceful now because it's been tamed, right? And the nature is, is we can sentimentalize nature because, you know, we're not dying of being touched by somebody who scratched their nose uh, and thus gave us the bubonic plague or the rats that came off the ships or whatever. So uh, for me, uh, it, there's some risk in where we are, but the alternative was definitely going off the cliff. And of course, you or I, if you're over 20, would not probably be alive to have this conversation if human beings hadn't decided to wrestle nature down to the ground and sort of have her serve our ends, which I just think is a, <laughs> is a good thing all around. For me, it'd be kind of hypocritical to say that it wouldn't be, it's not better because I really enjoy all of the products of technology and so on. So that's my sort of uh, two yeah, cents the, on it. Um, the, uh, strength, the strength of the human race is the diversity of our genetic makeup, you know, um, when we had the plague, there was one village in Derbyshire, which is in England, where nobody got the plague, and um, all around them, people were sort of dying. But in those days, um, villages never really travelled far. So for hundreds and hundreds of years, people were just staying in that one small area. And um, recently, a lot of American um, scientists and doctors have been coming to this village, um, going to local graveyard, obviously with people saying that they could do it, and digging up the old bones, extracting the DNA from the people that were alive during the plague, and then tracing people that are still alive living in the area with the same uh, genetic makeup, so they're actually linked by family. And it was on television. They've, they've still got the, uh, I'm not sure it's a virus, they've actually got the plague virus still, and they showed you under this microscope. They got a little drop of blood from one of these connected family members to the people that didn't die during the plague, and uh, it dropped one drop of blood on the, on, on the plague, and it just died com completely, you know, it just wiped it out. So um, these uh, out, outcrops of uh, genetic diversity is our saving grace, really, from these things that have come in the past or they might, might come in the future. Right, and even though we have challenges and, and so on, there is no other time in history that I would rather be alive. So uh, for me, I, and I don't know, I'm not getting this sense from you, so, but a lot of people who are really interested in the environmental stuff have a certain sense of impending doom, you know, like, oh, we're, we're a cancer on the world and so on. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, just for me, I, there's no other time in history that I would rather be uh, alive. I think the opportunities just to have this kind of conversation and this kind of interaction and and so on, for me to be able to make a living as a philosopher from the internet. I mean, it's incredible, right? So there's no other time that I would rather be alive. And so I'll, I'll take my chances, in a sense, with, with what we've got, rather than uh, worry too much about uh, uh, how things could be better. The uh, things I can see happening in the future, I'd say, is um, terraforming of planets. You know, they will find something that grows on Earth um, and then necessarily change it slightly and uh, send that to a dead planet, you know, maybe like sort of Mars, and it'll start there to sort of grow and it and it will um, over probably 500 years change change the atmosphere, and then they they may even leave, they may even genetically change people so they can suit the atmosphere and uh, gravity better, you know, so they can start a new race there. 
Well, I think that would be pretty cool. I hope that happens in my lifetime because I certainly would be interested in uh, in having a go at that. Well, listen, we've been running for about two and a half hours, which is usually about the length of the show. So thank you so much for uh, coming by. I really do appreciate it. If anybody had any last final death-defying statements, I'm certainly willing to uh, listen to them. Uh, other than that, though, we uh, we will start or stop off for this week, and we will pick up again. Uh, no, not next week. Three Sundays from now. Yes, I'm going to go on vacation, so um, I'll see you in <laughs> in a little while. I'm going on Friday, April Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday. Back to the bunnies, and um, what will I do? <laughs> no, don't worry. There'll still be some podcasts. Um, uh, mostly me going. I demand. Yeah, I'm on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you guys can always get together on Sunday and, and have a chit-chat and uh, realize just how um, how much you can get a word in edgeways without the big chatty forehead going on and on and on. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I really do appreciate it. And um, have yourselves an absolutely wonderful uh, week. Thank you so much for joining, as always, and I will talk to you soon.